0: VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host... Patty Daly.
1: Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, December the 11th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. We're looking forward to speaking with you this morning on a topic of your choosing. So, if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86... 26, and here we go, two weeks until Christmas. Whew, the year has flown by. All right, pretty successful weekend for the Newfoundland Growlers down at Mary Brown Center playing against the Maine Mariners. Beat them 4-2 yesterday. They take two out of the three-game set. So that's their final homestand of the season. They are on the road for another little trip before the Christmas holidays. In 2024, a ton of home games for the Growlers on tap. So pretty good weekend for them, and we'll check in at the Para Cup. This is getting a bit stale. So the United States and Canada in the final one more time. And like always, the Americans beat Liam Hickey and Team Canada 3-0 in the final. Now they played during the round robin and it was a 5-0 victory for the States. This game was much closer. They had the same number of shots. The Americans scored two really quick early goals and then uh, polished them off with a a late in the third uh, shorthanded empty netter. So that's eight straight Para Hockey Cup victories for the United States. They are super tough to beat. All right, interesting weekend for baseball fans and fans of sport. And it captured the attention and it reached a frenzied peak on Friday when the rumors were that the Toronto Blue Jays were absolutely in the middle of the Shohei sweepstakes. So, former Angels superstar unicorn Shohei Otani. So he signed with the Los Angeles Dodgers for $700 million over the course of 10 years. All kinds of deferrals and whatnot in place. I don't know all the ins and outs of the contract, but $700 million. You know, people are rightfully saying that's pretty obscene money. It's the first half a billion dollar player in baseball. The next highest paid guy is his former teammate Mike Trout. I think his contract covers some $436 million. But holy moly. It was also a real good case study in confirmation bias so basically people are leaning towards things that further bolster their opinion and or things they agree with or are on side with so for jay's fans who really wanted ohtani and i was on the fence it would have been exciting to have him but you know, you're seeing reports that he'd been in Dunedin to visit their Grapefruit League facility. And he'd been in Toronto and he was meeting with the executives. And a Dodgers reporter actually said on Friday that his sources told him that Otani was going to the Jays when, of course, turns out he was going to the team he covers with the Dodgers. So $70 million on the average. That's actually more than eight other teams in the league that don't spend $70 million on their entire roster. So, you know, the other side of that coin is for those fans who are disappointed, you know, that's a lot of money to wrap up in one guy. It really, truly is, you know, with the deferrals, an opportunity to, you know, have some good ball players surrounding Otani. But whew, anyway, the confirmation bias was on full display and I fell for it. You know, it's no big deal in sports because there's nothing really on the line when we talk about the big scheme of things. But you know, there other social issues and political issues. Confirmation bias rules the day, especially on social media. Anyway, a local sports note. Big shout-out and congratulations to the Gonzaga Boys varsity Vikings are winning the school's first male 4A championship hit in history. They beat Clarinsville High School in volleyball 15-13 in the third set. So congratulations to the Vikes in the volleyball. All right. It's an interesting one. It's on this date in 1931 that the Statute of Westminster was signed. So it granted total legislative, executive, and judicial independence to the Commonwealth realms of Canada, New Zealand, the Irish Free State, Australia, Newfoundland, and the Union of South Africa. Now, we know there was a long road and lots of controversial uh, issues took place between 31 and 49. We'll get to 49 here now in a second. But some of the commonwealths adopted the statute in full. Others only adopted it in part or ignored it, like the Irish Free State. They said the Irish Free State Constitution Act of 1922 already entitled the Irish government to all the powers contained within the Statute of Westminster. Therefore, they ignored it. In candidates commemorated a Statute of Westminster Day, it's mandated that on the 11th of December, the Royal Union flag or as we call it, the Union Jack, is to be flown at properties owned by the federal crown where there's a required second flagpole or staff, flag staff available. So the Statute of Westminster Day signed on 1931. And you heard Brian mention in the VOCM newscast. that we're going to get some details today about how the province is going to commemorate or celebrate the 75th anniversary of Newfoundland joining Confederation. Alright, we remember all the debates in the referenda and Canada became Canada's tenth province on eleven fifty nine, March thirty first of nineteen forty nine. So on the ballot were three options responsible government, commissional government, or confederation. Eventually Confederation won out and still lots of debate to be had about this number as well. Fifty two point three four percent voted in favor of confederation with Canada with her sometime later this morning. Premier is gonna be at the rooms to tell us how the province plans to commemorate or to celebrate or acknowledge knowledge the 75th anniversary okay I'll keep going so PC leader Tony Wakeham displeased with the provincial liberal government about all of the expensive ads that they're airing on television and playing on the radio touting their achievements Mr. Wakeham says you know given the fact that so many people are struggling maybe just maybe this is an ill-advised or ill-timed uh, wave of announcements now the government this is nothing new right governments do this to themselves all the time it's the dislocated shoulder from patting themselves on the back. So they say they have an obligation to create awareness about the initiatives and access to the different programs. So they'll talk about the poverty reduction program, income support uh, inclusion, uh, school lunch programs, other issues regarding like glucose, glucose monitoring pilot program, pardon me, which was announced in October. They've talked about reducing wait times in emergency rooms. People don't really feel that one. But Mr. Wicken goes on to also say he's pretty sure this has a direct connection with the pending by-election at Conception Bay East Bell Island. The PCs have their candidate in place, Tina Neary. The NDP have theirs, Kimberly Churchill. And we're anticipating, the nominations are open this week for the Liberals. But, you know, it does kind of feel like pretty heavy campaigning. That would be a real coup for the Liberals to win at Conception Bay East Bell Island. The PCs have had that seat for about 20 years. Of course, David Brazel finishing up at the end of this year. But if you want to bring it forward... We can do it interesting connection people are making between health care and housing and that's regarding the fact that the government is footing the bill for accommodations for travelling agency nurses and locums apparently based on information provided by the health authority 2.5 million dollars are spent to house travel nurses in hotels homes and apartments between the first of january and the 31st of august the number with the pardon me the region with the highest numbers out in central 129 travel nurses that cost 1.2 million dollars here in the eastern region almost nine hundred and seventy dollars seventy thousand dollars for 100 nurses western region the least out of three hundred and sixty one thousand dollars no numbers provided for labrador grenfell but you know people are saying that that impact is real when we talk about a very tight housing market and whether or not some prices have shot up because of this arrangement now when the province is trying to provide health care professionals it does come with an additional bill like housing But those numbers are out there, add to it, you know, just the reliance that the system has on these travel nurses and the disparity in pay and flexibility of schedule between the public health, uh, pardon me, the public registered nurses versus these travel nurses, about $2.5 million over the course of January 1st to August 31st in housing. Okay, in reference to one of the most common questions I get is about what's going on with the federal, federal dental care program some new information coming today. Okay, so gradually gonna phase it in throughout the course of 2024. They think that the application portal will be open as early as next week, starting with qualifying seniors over the age of 87. But it's gonna take months upon months before they can actually claim their benefits. So. We know that they talk about the fact that some nine million Canadians without private insurance will be the beneficiaries of this dental care program. So it's going to cost $13 billion over the course of the first five years, the largest expansion of our health care system in a generation, and the eligibility is clear. So they're talking about Canadian residents with a household income under $90,000 and no private insurance. Those with an annual family income under $70,000 will be no co-pays. So after they uh, deal with the seniors over the age of 87, then it's the senior 65 plus, people with disabilities, and for those, you have to uh, have an active disability tax credit in place. So, you know, it hasn't been rolled out the way it was initially announced, but it is coming a more detailed announcement coming this morning also for the procurement for the company that's going to manage and administer these claims so initially we were told by procurement minister Jean-Yves Duclos that they spent 15 million dollars and agreement with the company to lay the groundwork that was back in September now a contract has been awarded million for Sun Life Assurance Company to administer these claims. So for those of you asking me repeatedly about the federal dental plan, and I'm trying to get the information as best I can, now we know this morning a much more detailed announcement will be coming. Another announcement pending today from the federal government is about the possibility of an inquiry into abuse in sports. A lot of this stems back to the Hockey Canada story regarding the millions of dollars I was settled with a young woman who alleged she was sexually assaulted back in London, Ontario, 2017, by eight hockey players, including some members of Canada's World Junior Hockey Team. But there's been testimony offered by a number of elite athletes, and we know that unfortunately, the prevalence of abuse in sports is ridiculous, and it's grotesque, and we've got to get down to the bottom of how we're going to put forward public policy, oversight, and monitoring. So two committees, parliamentary committees, had launched investigations. There was elite athletes including Olympic boxer Miriam De Silva-Rondeau, fencer Emily Mason, soccer players Clara McCormick and Andrea Neal. They testified about the mental, physical abuse that they have suffered at the hands of coaches and officials. So while I really lean on the positive side of sport and understand the importance that it can have, especially for the country's youth, unfortunately, we've seen repeated stories documented stories of settlements rather be inside the world of hockey and hockey is not alone hockey uh, i guess is on the front burner for so many people but anticipating an announcement about what the federal government is going to do and there's been long calls for a fas- uh, pardon me a national inquiry here but not sure if that's coming but anyway and then we talk about some of the clog in the theater in parliament so you saw the extended uh around the clock debates and votes on amendments to various pieces of legislation and of course it is all about the theater you know nothing was going to change the conservative party was trying to force the prime minister's hand to axe the carbon tax in full and of course that's not happening, and we'll see where it goes because, you know, like even some legislation associated with this province, you know, the bill that is going to allow us to have the full control of offshore wind, you know, there's a MOU in place to see us be the primary uh, benefactor and the regulator, but the bill C-49 tangled up. In addition to that, you know, there were stories about the Conservatives vote against funding for Marine Atlantic. I don't think that means the Conservatives are against funding Marine Atlantic. I think it just means that they're voting against every single thing that the government puts forward, all in an effort to force their hand in the carbon tax world. So I saw lots of back and forth there and lots of hyperventilating, but I don't really think that speaks to what one party thinks about the specifics of funding for Marine Atlantic. It's constitutionally guaranteed to begin with, but there was a lot of going back and forth. And of course, each party trying to one-up each other with the cessationalism and the criticism and the consternation and the hyperventilating. Hyperbole, but anyway, some of that shenanigans in Parliament, not so sure. Did much for general and regular Canadians, but there you go. Let's talk about uh, education. And you know full well i continue to think about that story and report that we saw regarding math, science, and reading scores and just how poor they are and the trend since 2003 and what's being done or not being done about it. But on that front, you know, apparently Paul Dinn, PC member, for Paradise Region, Topsville Paradise, pardon me, had a meeting which he says it was a positive one with the Minister of Education, Crystal Lynn Howell, regarding the decision to whether or not there is going to be a high school built in Paradise. It was at the top of the list on the infrastructure list, and of course, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there was an announcement of a high school in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips, which doesn't jibe with the school enrollment numbers that we've seen. And Paradise has huge numbers of teenagers being bussed out of their community to high schools elsewhere. So apparently there's a group called the Paradise Needs a High School Committee. Their chair, Aaron Furlong, is focusing in on a budget submission before the deadline, December 15th. They're asking the area residents to go online, complete the budget survey for next year's budget. But Mr. Din says it was an encouraging meeting. And we'll see what that actually means in terms of budget. All right, I'll put this one back out there. So, inside the world of the trend downwards regarding math, science, and reading scores, there's got to be a variety of things in it, whether it be explicit instruction, enough time focusing on things like mathematics and science, but you wonder what the implication is of cell phones in school. I haven't heard one legitimate good argument as to why students should be able to have the cell phone in their hand during the course of the school day. So some work being done now in the UK. Like there's already bans in place in places like France. In the UK, they're working towards this as well. So even in the United States, there was letters written to the U.S. Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, talking about this generally unhealthy use of cell phones, period, but especially in schools. So they've got some numbers here to consider about just how common it is. So there's a group called Common Sense Media. They say, based on their research, that 97% of kids aged 11 to 17 were on their phones between 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. on school days for an average of 43 minutes. They typically pick up their phone 13 different times throughout the course of the day. Most frequently used uh, usage of that phone would be for social media apps. We talk about the research they're doing up along here in Canada, using brain imagery about social media, what that means for anxiety, depression, and lashing out in anger. Same thing just related to general phone usage. Since it became commonplace for young people to have a smartphone in their hand and a data package, we've seen increases in levels of anxiety and depression, and yes, lashing out in anger. Things considering concerning things like isolation and the lack of socialization and the attention span which has suffered because of things like tiktok so i don't think it's an unreal conversation to have about whether or not it's appropriate now if the teacher thinks that in part of the curriculum the ability to use the phone could be helpful in in an effort to learn okay you know it doesn't mean that you can't have your phone at lunchtime doesn't mean that your parents will be unable to reach you exemptions can be brought forward for instance there's some bluetooth application that helps monitor glucose glucose levels so things can be accommodated but i don't imagine the cell phone usage in school is helping when we talk about the downward trend in some of those notable areas of the curriculum but you want to take it on We can do it. Congratulations to the organizer and everyone who participated in the Mummer's Parade this past Saturday in Bowering Park. The weather was dreadful, but apparently hundreds showed up, so that's very good news. A couple of more quick shout outs. One of the very most important voices in the world of advocacy for mental health and access to long-term mental health is our good friend Christy Allen. She joins us every now and then on the program. We appreciate her time. She had an idea to b- buy a couple of Taylor Swift tickets, which are absolutely in high demand. They're like hen's teeth. So she put them up on a raffle, and they raised $38,397, all going to the Jacob Potter Memorial Foundation. That's allowed that incredible group to be able to hire another staffer to uh, make available evening appointments. So bravo to Christie. And congratulations to the winner. I believe the lady's name is Leanne. So $38,397 raised for that effort, absolutely brilliant. And congratulations to my old buddy, Kevin Casey, now an author. He's been in the sales game for a long time. He's the co-founder of the ad agency, The Idea Factory, which does excellent work. He looked through, throughout the pandemic about his own life and work, and he didn't like what he saw, apparently. So he wrote a book based on a bunch of ideas that he st- I was gonna say stole, that he co-opted from Seinfeld, Costanzas. So looking at George, saying that nothing he's done in his life has met with any success, so try the opposite. So he wrote a book, it's called Unselling, 14 Unconventional Principles sales anxiety and increase sales is available online right now through Amazon it's one of their best sellers so congratulations to Kevin if you're in the sales world this is a must read all right we're on Twitter we're at Open Line. follow us there email address is openline at VOCM.com and my favorite is when you join us live on the air just like Val who wants to talk about home care don't go away welcome back to the program let's begin on the top of the board line number one good morning Val you're on the air uh,
2: good morning um, Patty uh, this is my first time calling and I'm calling about an important issue. That's home care for seniors. Yeah. Um, my wife, um, in the last year and a uh, year and four months, she developed cancer, and on top of that, she also uh, developed dementia. I looked after her for um, two years and four months. And it was unbearable, so I sought the help of home care. Unfortunately for me, it turned out to be a very uh, bad event, uh, events that uh, should be changed. What happened? Well, I, uh, <clears throat> prior to her passing on November the 19th, uh, two days before that, we engaged a home care worker. I couldn't take it anymore. And then on the, the 19th, she passed after we had the uh, home care worker for two days. OK, now after she passes, then I get a big whopping bill for two days for $410 from the uh, uh, home care company, and I thought that was outrageous uh we had uh, the central health intake uh gave us a $500 a month for 120 hours um for $500 and, and i was um going to uh, go to the seniors advocacy to get that uh change because i thought it was too much because um, uh, on a limited income, I shouldn't have to pay that much. So, but anyway, with a uh, four hundred and ten whopping bills for a bill for uh, they say sixteen hours, but actually was only uh, four hours the first day, which was fine, and then they charged me twelve hours, which in actuality is not true because uh, the home care lady was only here from 10 to 1 o'clock where we took her to the emergency in Baldwood Tumor Centre. So in actuality, it's only seven hours that they should be charging me for. But they're charging me a whopping 4 and $10, which is not fair. I have written a letter to the home care expressing my uh, concern that they were overcharging me, gouging me. And and they say, well, it's the policy. They always blame it on the policy. Intake in Gander, they blame it on the policy. But um, so the policy then uh, needs to be changed. I sent a letter to the um, um, health minister, Mr. Osborne, never heard a word. I called his. is communication director, never heard a word. And so I sought the help of uh, the politicians, of course. Uh, uh, Mr. Din, Paul Din, 4C, which is uh, the member here in Exploits. And uh, so uh, up to now, there is no recourse and the legislation has to change it has to change for the best of seniors they say in the accord that they want uh, seniors uh, to uh, live at home in their last stages and yet they're not doing anything to help them
1: the world of health care has to change or home care pardon me has to change drastically you know there's lots of conversations about what they call aging in place before we get into that my deepest condolences on your loss Val. i'm really sorry Thank you very much. So uh, when, the, you know, when you approach the company that provided the home care worker and you tell them, well, you know, you're charging me for hours that were never worked, how do they respond?
2: They respond uh, that, you know, that's what it says in the policy. That's what Central Health is saying. And uh, they said uh, that uh, they spend my money first. The $500 that I'm supposed to pay for the only 20 hours they spend first. So that's what they're telling me. So therefore, they said you have to uh, you have to pay twenty six dollars an hour to them, and yet they only pay the um, home care worker uh, seventeen dollars. So they're making a big profit off me and a senior. So I don't agree with it. That's what they're telling me.
1: It sounds patently unfair. You know, nobody should, even if you pay some some sort of commitment up front, but the hours are not required because of the unfortunate passing of your wife, and just the hours worked is all anyone should have to pay for, period, regardless of what we're talking about, home care or otherwise.
2: That's so- right. Yeah, that's, that's my beef, is that... I shouldn't have to pay $26 an hour, and I shouldn't have to pay the seven hours I was actually for. Them. Now, the lady, the home care lady, God bless her, um, she followed me uh, to the Toomey Center, and then she was transported to Grand Falls Hospital, but I, I didn't agree to those hours. So that's why the 12 hours for that second day, you know, uh, I only, uh, she was only here three hours. But uh, uh, like I said, God bless her that she helped me. But the thing is, I, I don't have to pay that. I didn't agree to that.
1: No, it's extremely frustrating, and what a time to have to deal with something like this in a bill of $410 all while you're grieving over something that seems patently unfair. I'm really sorry to hear this, Val. So you've sent off these letters to various representatives. Uh, So you're out in Central, right? So your member is plebeant Forsey?
2: Yeah, he responded. He said I told him I was going online. He, He patted me on the back for that. But I I want them to bring this uh, into the legislature, if it ever opens up, uh, they don't seem to be there most of the time, uh, to bring it up and uh, present it to the premier, uh, which I sent a letter, uh, copied the letter to anyway, and they should know about it, and they should get back to me and say, well, uh, Val, we're, we're sorry, but uh, uh, we'll help you out. But I never heard a thing, you know, it's unfair.
1: It certainly sounds unfair, and you're 100% right to point out with, you know, the health accord and other conversations that are talking about seniors being able to live in their own home for longer until it's no longer re- realistically possible. If that's the case, then there's got to be legislation that makes that realistic and manageable and affordable.
2: Well, of course, and that's what the uh, advocacy uh, group are trying to do, but the, the Premier won't listen to them, and the rest of the uh, Liberals won't listen to them. Who's going to listen? Uh, do we have to go to another party to get something done and will they do something i know it's unreal and it's outrageous
1: it is val and i'm really sorry to hear all of this and what's happening to you and your family uh, would you like to say anything else sir before we say goodbye this morning
2: beg your pardon would
1: you like to say anything else before we say goodbye val
2: well, uh, I think that it should be changed. Uh, home care companies should not be able to uh, allow the goats. The government should change the policy to make it a lot easier for uh, seniors to live in their own home. And then if they need home care, that should be affordable. And, uh, yeah, they should definitely change the policy. Agreed. That's the bottom line.
1: I appreciate your time this morning, Val. Be well. All right. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. I mean, uh, hours worked is always should anyone should be paying for, no matter what we're talking about. Let's go to line number two. Tom, you're on the air. Hello, Paddy. Hello.
3: And merry Christmas.
1: Uh, merry Christmas to you.
3: I'm calling you about the tomb of the unknown soldier. Okay. And uh, well, uh the government is looking out to go and buy a new one. Uh, Excuse me. I'm talking out here for a minute. What I'm getting at is the uh, contact was presented to the gentleman, and uh, he's seventy percent done. So, the love of the hands of a Newfoundlander creating this tomb for the unknown soldier is very
1: sacramental to those. It seems like it's such a strange set of circumstances. Just so so folks know what we're talking about. The fellow's name is Mark Bryce. He owns Ocean Floor Granite. And so he had the contract and the way he was operating out of his Jumpers Brook quarry was the same when he got the contract as when they took it away. So apparently the thieves got in and took away his ability to be hooked up to the provincial electricity grid because they stole the copper wire, so he's been operating with a generator. But that was exactly the case when they gave him the contract. So nothing has changed, and yet, lo and behold, he doesn't... doesn't, he's unable now to complete the project, of which you're right, he said last week on this program that he's 70% complete. And of course then he was using uh, granite from this province. The black granite, the Newfoundland black granite, which they called black gabbro, also using labradorite stone known as blue eyes. So it had all of those really meaningful connections and now they're all gone.
3: Yes. Uh, and to give a take on that, my great uncle served in the First World War and He was shot on July first, 1916, and died three days later. So to have that tune come from another country that is not our rock, I don't understand the government. They should have been behind him and help him get this finished and present what the love of his hands did for us in order to put those Unknown soldier. The unknown soldier brings back the souls of all those who can ever come home. That's part of it, too.
1: That's right, the repatriating, the remains of a member of the Newfoundland Regiment in France and will be laid to rest in this tomb. Now, the Minister Responsible John Abbott says he's confident that this will get done before July 1st and the 100th anniversary celebrations. But then the inspector from the Department of Digital Government and Service NL, they said quite clearly that upgrades to comply with the electrical code were required, da 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 da, da. Well, if that's the case, how, how come it wasn't the case when they gave him the contract in the first place? So, strange story and un- completely unnecessary.
3: Exactly. So the government should be jumping in behind him and helping him in every way to get this complete because it's our land, our stone, our people that are out there that sacrificed for us.
1: I appreciate the sentiment and the time this morning, Tom. Thank you, sir.
3: Thank you very much for your time, sir.
1: My pleasure. Take care. Bye. Right, bye. Yeah, that one seems like a bit of a cell phone, doesn't it? So, okay, let's take a break. Don't go away.
0: Win your Christmas cash with a VOCM Cares for the Community 50-50 draw. Buy your tickets until December 16th at VOCM.com. Welcome back to the
1: program. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Virginia waters Pleasantville. He's the Minister of Environment and Climate Change. That's Bernie Davis. Good morning, uh, Minister Davis. You're on the air.
4: Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning?
1: Not too bad, thank you. How about you?
4: Good, good. Excellent. Uh, Just wanted to touch base uh, about uh, the visit to uh, COP28 in Dubai.
1: Where would you like to start?
4: Well, uh, just, uh, you know, it's an important conference that uh, the international community attends, and it's important that, uh, you know, we have the opportunity in Newfoundland and Labrador to market, for lack of a better term, Patty, um, you know, the opportunity that exists uh, for climate change initiatives within our jurisdiction, uh, whether it be carbon capture, whether it be uh, protected lands, or whether it be, uh, you know, the new hydrogen projects that uh, are looking at uh, investing in our uh, in our shores.
1: Let's start with carbon capture. I mean, this is an important conference, as you rightfully point out. But this year, a record number of oil and gas lobbyists, 2,456 of those lobbyists. And when even like uh, premiers like uh, Daniel Smith and his province and Scott Moe and others talk about carbon capture, I mean, this really feels like greenwashing the issue, though, to be honest, because if the oil companies are out in front of this carbon capture issue, it's only because of one thing. It allows them to continue to produce. So how green do most countries even think that this? technology is.
4: Well, we did a panel uh, that was very well attended. I think there was a couple hundred people in attendance there uh, in person, and, and I don't know how many on, online, of course. But you know, it was talking about the opportunity that exists for carbon capture with Premier Moe and and Premier Smith um, from Alberta and Saskatchewan, um, and we talked about the opportunity that exists in all of our jurisdictions. And I know they're a little bit further ahead than we are because we're looking at the offshore; they're on they're onshore. Uh, but that's part of the reason why we moved uh, on creating a um, a, uh, a, you know, a fund, uh, a challenge fund to uh, spur. Uh, technology and investment with research uh, and industry uh, to find solutions that would reduce, see what the cost is to do those things and, and where best to do it and how much we can actually do. Which I guess is key questions that need to be answered and we're excited about the opportunity that exists and every scientist and every jurisdiction around the world understands that there's new technologies have to be um, utilized in order to reach net zero by 2050. One of those is a uh, carbon capture, one of those is you know, um, Uh, other things that could be like hydrogen and other things like that, but most of what people are saying at that international conference is is positive about where we go from a perspective of carbon capture.
1: Even in the world of green hydrogen, for the end user, emission-free, but we also have to consider shipping it across the Atlantic to get it to its end market, if indeed that becomes and remains the European Union, notably Germany. Inside the world of carbon capture, how are we thinking about it here in this province? Because if we're capturing at the source, we'll say offshore, that's one thing, but when the premium talks about an economic potential for it, you know, importing carbon from elsewhere. At some point we're talking about break even at best, maybe even create more emissions by shipping carbon here to eject it into a depleted oil
0: well.
4: Well, that's exactly what the research uh, challenge is about, uh, determining which is the best way and course of action for that. Um, you know, in a simplistic term, like you just said, uh, capturing a source is ideal, of course. You know, obviously uh, we have a, a, um, a platforms, we have a skilled labor force, we have, uh, you know, a skilled uh, technical expertise over the last number of years and decades that has allowed our staff to and employees able the ability to transition very quickly to something like this uh, with the little bit of tweaking of technology and a bit of training uh, we should be able to uh, to pivot in those areas but you're exactly right some of the technologies about transportation of this product uh, um, the opportunity that exists not unlike hydrogen uh, and we talked about before you, transporting ammonia transporting hydrogen all of those things are going to be technology driven and there's going to be technological advances made that are going to allow those things to happen over the next uh, number of years um, uh, that'll be much more efficient uh, and we've seen that with battery technology with respect to EVs as well as uh, charging infrastructure so those advances because the best and brightest and that's one of the things I guess that you feel when you when you go to cop is the the weight of the the entire problem and challenge that we all face as a global community but also you know you see that there's so many people as you mentioned uh, one group um but there's so many people there uh, engaged in trying to make the right decisions as fast as we possibly can to transition uh, to reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but also the conversation is starting to switch a little bit at COP uh, to talk about, you know, how we're going to do adaptation a- and things with respect to that and how, how we best deal with those things. There's the bil- that we're seeing now.
1: Billions of dollars set aside, I can't remember what they called it, but to talk about mobilizing to protect and restore nature. So when you mention things like the hydrogen proposals in this province, you know, 40% of the Port of Port Peninsula will be occupied by wind turbines at some point if all of the proposals coming from World Energy GH2 are in place, so when they're talking about the importance to restore and protect nature, how do you square that circle? Because that was one of the key focus areas there, you know, they talk about things like the mangroves, which is not really a big deal here, you know, we've got a problem with eelgrass, not mangroves, but how do you square that circle? Protect nature, yet some of these, the footprint for the onshore wind projects are pretty massive.
4: Yeah, there's no doubt. There's a balancing act that needs to occur, and that's part of the reason why we've we've announced 10 protected areas. Now we're working on three with federal and indigenous governments uh, right now that are both marine protected and terrestrial protected areas that we're going to continue to work on. Um, I met with one of their indigenous governments to discuss that very projects that we're talking about uh, with partnership uh, with them and. This, this only happens with, uh, you know, a multi-pronged approach. Um, not only is it, you know, carbon capture, not only is it uh, protecting lands, it's also looking at new technologies, doing things better, like moving uh, oil to electric, what we're doing in our province, transitioning uh, people from the use of oil-fired uh, furnaces to electric uh, furnaces. Those things are all making a difference, because you got to remember that our emissions are coming from a bunch of different areas. Um, you know, transportation accounts for some 35, 40 percent of our emissions in this province equal to that in the, the big industry. And we've got the Management of Greenhouse Gas Act in this province where we're uh, ratcheting down on industry every year where they've got to do better and every year as a collective uh, we've done better than what we've uh, put in place uh, for our Management of Greenhouse Gas Act, which is an important piece. Do we have to do more? Absolutely.
1: How does it dovetail with the announcement last week from the federal government regarding emissions a cap on emissions for the oil and gas sector? So you know it's a bit more modest than people thought it would be So what's the implication for our offshore today and in the future with that announcement last week? Do we know?
4: We we don't know as of yet, Patty, and that's the oddest truth of it. What we've got is staff in my department as well as the federal government working very closely on looking at those uh, the parameters, it is a framework as we said. It's a national framework, so we've got to work within that uh, process. But you know, it's early days in that process. It was only announced late last week. Uh, we're still working through that process, and once we have a little bit more of a handle on that, working with the federal government, um, we're going to be able to let you know where we stand exactly on that. I know some other jurisdictions across the country are not as happy uh, as that, and and we're we're staying the jury's still out on that yet.
1: You mentioned the oil to electric program that the province announced. And there's various pots of money, but still some confusion out there. You know, what can be considered a primary source of heat and the ability to get home insurance? So what do you know? What can you tell us about a central heat pump being the primary source of heat and getting home insurance?
4: Well, I guess it really depends on the insurance company, of course. And that's each individual house is slightly different. Uh, I know from our standpoint, we've went uh, two years ago from 100 transitions to 1,700 last year, and now we're close on 1,600 right now at this point. uh, And we've got a significant number of more in the queue that we're looking for. So we should potentially hit uh, close to 3,000 this year uh, transitions, which is a a very good thing. And the people that I've talked to on the phone and, and reached out to me about it are very happy with the program. Is there um, things in the program that are challenging? Uh, of course, absolutely. But uh, we're working uh, we're working through those and finding solutions. Um, when someone has a, a little stumbling block that they find with that, they reach out to our staff here and we try to find a solution that's possible for them within the confines of the program. It is a federal-provincial partnership, uh, both through NRCan as well as uh, ECCC in, in, in uh, Ottawa. So, you know, it is three parties, uh, three different departments involved, so we're working very closely with them to see if we can find any more availability for people that may uh, be falling through a little crack that may exist.
1: You've been taken the task for a photo that you, po- you posed for with Rick Smith. No friend of this province, former head man at the IFAW, anti-sealing group to say the very, very least. Did you know who he was? And if so, why pose for a picture with a fellow who, has, as I said, is no friend of this province?
4: Yeah, so I, I did know who he was. Uh, I've, he's uh, chair, uh, I think, of the Canadian Climate Change Institute. As climate change minister, I think it's incumbent on us to have conversations with people. And, and the funny thing about the, the picture, Patty, is that it's a. Uh, It was about a two-minute fleeting conversation when I was coming out of the Canada House, which is the pavilion, the Canadian pavilion there, and he was going in. And he said, uh, I run into you only at COP. This is our second time we've met each other, and it was at COP both times. And um, so we have no relationship. And my views on the seal hunt are completely different than his views. Uh, And I don't know what his views are because I've never had that conversation. I know what his past views have been. I don't know if he's uh, educated himself and wised up to the fact that it's very important for us to expand the seal hunt. I would hope that he's gotten smarter in his older age than uh, than, uh, more foolish.
1: Appreciate the time. Thank you. Thanks, Patty. Take care. Bye bye. Minister of Environment and Climate Change is Bernie Davis. All right. uh, Quick note before we get to the break and come back and speak with Todd. So I mentioned the Growler's success over the weekend. You know, took two, two out of three against the Maine Mariners. Also, want to say congratulations to our very own Chris Batstone. He's been the in game voice, whether it be back to the Fog levels and the Ice Caps and the Baby Leafs, and now, of course, with the uh, Newfoundland Growlers. 20 years, Batstone. You celebrated that over the weekend, so congratulations to my buddy Chris Batstone. Let's take a break, don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Todd Churchill. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing this morning? Doing okay, thank you. How about you?
5: Not too bad. I just called to speak about the upcoming by-election in Conception Bay, East Bell Island. And as you know, my wife, Kimberly, is uh, the NDP candidate for, for the, the election. Um, you know, one, one of the things that really uh, drew myself and Kimberly to um, the NDP was through our human rights battle with the uh, English school district. Uh, you know, the NDP was really there for us and supported us and when we reached out to others other politicians certainly liberals uh, no support there no surprise uh you know we in six years we were never ever contacted by an opposition uh, education critic not not in six years you probably find it hard to believe and i'm the first to say that i've always been a pc supporter um but my experience with the ndp supporting us from day one right through the hearing last year when uh jimby attended multiple sessions of that hearing and even the ex-leader lorraine michael supported us she was there for multiple sessions uh you know it won us over to the ndp because we we found out uh, we realized the ndp actually cares about people and i, and I know you know callers will, will call in after me and say you know he's deluded you know nobody cares but but they actually did and and that was my lived experience that they actually did take an interest in a, a deaf child in a wheelchair when, when nobody else did. And, and they supported us, and that's what won me over. And, you know, I was as hardcore a PC supporter as there was, but the NDP really have, have won me over because they're genuine. They actually do care about people. And they're bringing attention to things like homelessness when the government has done nothing. The government has been a complete failure on homelessness, and the only reason there's a task force now is because the NDP keeps hammering the government on homelessness, because the government has been completely uh, incompetent in addressing that urgent need.
1: I don't think either party has really done much, on, and I mean consecutive governments with the PCs and the Liberals this is not a new issue, again you know, it's just like the healthcare system, things didn't happen overnight, the country changes tune on housing from a place to lay your head to a part of the GDP right? so there's a, a mindset shift required on that front and you know, whether or not people think that one party or another actually cares about people it's sometimes it's a little bit easier to be in opposition than it is to govern campaigning is easy, governing is difficult so I'll just throw that out there for a part of the conversation another thing Todd and I don't know how to ask this without being you know it's going to be a clumsy question I wonder what yourself and Kim I guess your past experience and you know being an advocate for Carter and being in the public spotlight and fighting for something has given you a good starting point but politics is messy and politics at some point can be really quite ugly do you think yourself and Kimberly are prepared because you know if you're in opposition it's not going to be too bad but let's just say for at some point in the future that the province decides to go orange, and that's just a hypothetical, obviously. You know, being on that side of the ledger is not very comfortable and not very pleasant from where I sit.
5: Well, I'll I'll tell you now. uh, One of the things I think Kimberly really proved in our fight for human rights uh, battle for our son is that she has the skill sets, the determination, the tenacity. You know, never once in six years did Kim ever turn to me and say, Todd, we should give up. We should give up because it's too hard, the English school district has has too much legal resources, too much financial resources. We can't win, and we should give up. Never once did she say that. And that stick-to-itness and that that determination is not something that I I think any candidate or any potential candidate in this by-election can really claim that they took on something that was so daunting and so overwhelming that no one had dared take it on before Kim did. Uh, So, you know, it's one thing, Patty, for somebody to come to your door, knock on your door, and say, "Uh, hello, Mr. Daly. you know, if you vote for me, I'll support you, I'll fight for you. Uh, But it's another thing to say, you know, Mr. Daly, if you vote for me, I'll fight for you because I've fought before. I've fought before, I've fought hard issues before, and I've succeeded before. So when you have someone who has a track record of taking on very, very difficult issues in very challenging situations – and, and being successful. I mean, that is the type of person, the type of track record that you want as a person to to uh, represent you in the House of Assembly. Someone who cannot be bullied, someone who cannot be intimidated, and someone who cannot be ground down. And that's not me saying this. That's Kim's uh, background. That's Kim's history of taking on big issues. And, you know, I, I, was, I was so sad listening to a gentleman that a couple of callers ago, when he was talking about his voice passing and his, his situation with his home care. And, you know, he had reached out to politicians and, and what did he get? Nothing. And that's not unique. That experience of people in need, real people with real problems, reaching out and not getting a, a response and just getting silenced, that's, that's not a unique experience people of the province deserve better than what they're getting. And quite frankly, the NDP is a better option because they actually legitimately care. And I'm I'm speaking from lived experience. And and again, I'm the first to admit I was the most hardcore PC party supporter there was. And they won me over because they're actually genuine. And for people like that gentleman who, who just feels that nobody cares, one of the things people can do right now is go to Kimberly's Facebook page, which is Kim Churchill, NDP candidate for Conception Bay East, Bell Island, and follow her. And send a message that there is a lot of support for change, that people want something different than politics as usual. Like, we we keep ping-ponging back and forth between two parties, PC party, liberal party. We have one party for 10 years, we get sick of them because they messed up so many things. We put the other party in. We have them for a while, we go back to the first party that we voted out in the first place. Like, it makes no sense to keep doing the same thing over and over. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting a different result. So the NDP really provides a third option, a valid third option, people that will actually go to back for you and not just give you lip service or give you radio silence when you actually reach out. So I would encourage people to go on Kimberly's Facebook page. She's actually reachable through Instagram. Uh, There's actually a web page on the NDP's provincial website. Uh, If you go to nl.ndp.ca, there's a web page for Kim where you can learn more about her background. Uh, She's also reachable on Twitter and by email.
1: Todd, before we run out of time, and so that's your pitch and support for your wife and the party in Conception Bay, East Bell Island, but on your son's file. So when the Human Rights Commission brought forward a financial reward, award for you and your family, and then, you know, talking about the fact that Carter was betrayed by the system, for lack of a better reference. So my thought would be, this is the precedent-setting case. You know, every child with exceptionalities, regardless if it's on the spectrum, or in Carter's case, as a deaf child, you know, The support has to be there, but yet we still hear stories where the support is not there or not there in adequate enough numbers. So have you seen any move on the positive side on that front? Because this should be the guiding principle for the school district and the Department of Education from now on.
5: Well, it's funny you should say that because before the school year started, we had four different parents from outside the Avalon, outside St. John's area, reach out to us with deaf children in other parts of the province with exactly the same issues as Carter was discriminated against, with nothing has changed for those kids because those parents have not followed the human rights complaint, and you know it's it's I, I don't I don't um, knock parents for not doing it because they saw what myself and Kimberly went through to fight for our son. It is a, quite a daunting challenge because everything but the kitchen sink is thrown at you. Uh, I mean, for people who don't know the story the English school district spent $750,000 of taxpayer money, the bulk of which I might add was during Andrew Fury's time in office. Um, You know, uh, $500,000 alone last year, I think was exactly $490,000 was spent just last year alone while Andrew Fury was premier. Um, So nothing has changed for those kids. Uh, Carter's seen some improvements, but only because he fought like hell – for, for him and we refuse to give up. Uh, that's the only reason. It's not because they've had some sort of uh, epiphany that now suddenly they've said, oh my God, we've we're, we're done wrong and we're gonna, we're gonna be better. They've learned nothing because other children in other parts of the province who are in the exact same situation as Carter was at Beach Cove Elementary, nothing's changed. Uh, it's shameful. It, it really is that you had to fight tooth and nail for things. Uh, that that you should take for granted, but that's that's our government. Unfortunately, that's the the Andrew Fury government uh, that we're stuck with. Um, you know, so the best way to to fight that is to have really really strong uh, members of the opposition. And I think Kimberly will be one of those strong voices because she has a history of being a strong voice and being a person who cannot be worn down and cannot be intimidated.
1: I appreciate the time this morning, Todd. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. You know, on that front, even when we hear from the Association for the Deaf, there's something like five or six ASL interpreters in the province. So no wonder people in that community are speaking out. I suppose it's, you know... The conversation's got to be about purposefully trained ASL teachers for the obvious reasons. I don't know how many people at this moment in time at Memorial University who are working towards their education degree are also working for full-on trained and fully competent in American Sign Language because that's their language. We talk about speaking to people in their language. And, of course, you know, people who are newcomers trying to learn English and what have you, 100%. But for Carter and others, ASL is their language. It's not English. It's ASL. So anyway, let's take a break. Welcome back. Mike's in Q, to respond to Minister Davis. Don't go away.
0: Make a request anytime by calling 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. And your request just might win you a cozy VOCM winter toque. Your Merry Christmas station. Your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go.
1: Line number one. Mike, you're on the air.
6: Hey, Patty. Good morning. Good morning, uh, P- Patty. Before I get into the topic, and a completely different topic, young uh, Mister Newhook, who's been doing so well as a hockey player from Newfoundland, Labrador, playing for the Canadians, uh, was injured. Uh, but uh, I, I haven't seen the details on it. This shouldn't take very long. Uh, and for those who are not into hockey, forgive me, but I'd like to know it. And then this guy seems to be—Patty <laughs> seems to be tuned into that kind of stuff. What, what's the details on him? What, what's he's, going on that? He's up
1: for 10 to 12 weeks. He's got a high ankle sprain oh. and a fracture.
6: Wow. That's yeah. so, so young in his career. What is he, 21 or so? Uh,
1: Alex is 20. No, he's older than that. Alex is maybe 22, 23. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in the. He grew up on my street. You know, we've known each other for the, his entire life, and it's really sad state of affairs to break your ankle like that and the high ankle sprain, which is a terrible injury. He's going to get to come home for Christmas, but he's got to stay close for treatment, of course. And uh, anyway, it's really too bad. Hopefully, he's back as soon as possible.
6: Well, please God, you know it's uh, yeah, it's a t- it's a tough on the face. I I met the young fellow once or twice. My my grandson played hockey in the league. He did all the way through and, and that type of thing. So I guess we all like to you know what do you say? Attach ourselves to somebody who's doing really well. Uh, I I wish him well. I hope he gets over that. Period. Yeah, me too. I know it's a tough It's a tough hit. Uh, Patty, I I called. Uh, I hadn't intended to call this morning. Um, I had a very solid weekend of some. Uh, distress, medical distress, which is you now passing, please God. But uh, uh, Herney, I heard Mr. Davis call this morning, and uh, that gave me a bigger headache than I had all weekend. Uh, I have deep concerns for the position of Newfoundland and Labrador in the climate change actions that are on the go right now, and conservation, because they're tied together, Patty. These are no longer separate. These are now climate change and conservation and protection of the environment. It's all lumped in together now in the U.N., and uh, and it's all being discussed, as you pointed out in your comments, at these cops, these these countries where they all get together and have a big, uh, you know, mug up and have a discussion on how they're going to go and save the world type stuff, which is really important stuff that they talk. But New but, but Newfoundland and Labrador, from what I hear from Mr. Davis, seem to be on the outside looking in. They don't seem to be. You know, I, I, we sent a lot of people over to Doha, for example. I'm assuming the minister doesn't travel alone, and there's probably other contingents as well. But to come back and say we have a law, a management of greenhouse gas laws, what we have, I think. But that's going to be overruled by a new framework being developed by the federal government, and they will talk to us. Now, maybe I missed that. They will talk to us. They will consult with us. And then in the same breath almost, and you raised it. Thank you for that. This very charming picture, which anybody knows him. He's a very charming guy and very accomplished. And he was an animal rights activist. And Yes, the International Fund for Animal Welfare slammed our tourism and shut down our markets and everything else. Mr. Smith himself is a very nice fellow. He's very committed to what he does. So there was a pitch there, and you raised it. You got this picture this year, sort of, you know. They speak smiley. said, oh, yeah, that was only two minutes. Of course, there was another big picture, a bigger picture, the cop in Egypt that Mr. Davis was at. And it was tweeted out in a beautiful team picture and really looking forward to working with Mr. Smith. Mr. Davis says... Mr. Davis rightfully pointed out, Patty, that Mr. Smith is part of the Canadian Climate Institute. So you got to talk to these guys. He's right. But then you have to know what the Canadian Climate Institute is. Do you know what that is, Patty?
1: Not necessarily, no. Well,
6: I'll tell you what it is. The federal government of Canada, under the Department of Environment and Climate Change Canada, and that's headed up nowadays by Mr. Mr. Guilbeau. Guilbeau, forgive me, I can never pronounce his name correctly. Stephen Guilbeau, I believe it is. He's a former Greenpeace activist who actually was forced to apologize to Aboriginal groups for his behavior and what Greenpeace did on the uh, protest movement to them. He had his own private little activist group in the in, uh, and and by the way, in in the Greenpeace action, Mr. Gilbo ended up going to do some time at the equivalent of Her Majesty's bed and breakfast up there. Had his own little company, his own little group in Quebec to protest everything. I'm Animal rights activists again. He is now the minister involved for climate change and the environment. And to support him, he put out a request for proposals for a group. That would provide independent and expert-driven analysis to help Canada move toward clean growth in all sectors and regions of the country. And this is on Canadian Climate Institute's website. I'm not plucking this out of the air. It says our work is currently supported through a five-year contribution agreement with who? Environment and Climate Change Canada, Mr. Gibault.
1: Okay, I'm sorry. Well, What's the point you're making on that front? Just so I'm sure we'll okay, make sure Okay, the I'm-
6: point I'm making on this fundus, this is not a, oh my goodness moment. This is all, well, yeah, we met and said hi. This is very important to Newfoundland and Labrador in that we are working in the big leagues with the government of Canada and the UN. And on the other side of the coin from us, It's a group who are gathering information, supposedly information, that's going to impact this uh, new framework agreement that's put on. And it's led by somebody who who did serious damage, the group did serious damage to us and still has. And yet Mr. Davis seems to be dancing around it. What is he doing going to Doha? With, with the whole group and spending a barrel full of money just to play that loan, I'm sure. And we don't even have a framework agreement with the federal government. So, yeah, do, am I, am I, do I get annoyed when... I've seen this so many times in my life. Do I get annoyed with the, hearing Mr. Davis dance around this this morning? Indeed, I do. That's not performance. We should have had the framework before we even went over there. We don't even know what we're talking about over there because the federal government hasn't yet told us
1: so are you talking about an emissions cap framework
6: yeah well that's part of it the emissions cap framework is part of it but what what's part of it now is that and what most people don't seem to get and what's really a threat or it could be a real positive is done right to newfoundland and labrador is the, uh, the, the emissions cap framework is part of climate change businesses on the go. Also a part of climate change are a lot of actions related to the ocean, to ocean conservation. It's all tied in together now with the federal government. The Canadian, the Climate Institute and Mr. Gibault, they control a thing called the Fisheries Act 2019. And all of that, you heard about talk about these groups they're meeting with, the aboriginal groups they're meeting with, and the protected areas they're meeting with, all in the name of climate change, but it's conservation. And this is all all important stuff. This is critically important stuff to Newfoundland and Labrador's future. This can be a huge positive thing or a huge negative and I don't think Mr. Davis understands that. I really don't think. I think it's the way Obama was floating above him. He really should resign out of it at this point in time. I do brings see. Bring himself up to date. It's tied together. And uh, and this man, uh, yeah, fine, Mr. Smith, fine. He's a nice man. He's a fine man. I've spoken to him in the past. But uh, his history doesn't leave me very confident that he's going to be on the side of Newfoundland and Labrador, given that even up to today that his, that International Fund of Animal Welfare hasn't apologized for its action against Newfoundland and Labrador in the uh, seal hunt wars. And uh, so I'm, I'm concerned yeah, Mr. Davis, I am. I, the fact that you would go to Doha, all the way to Doha, and a fortune in big jets, And not even know, before you go over, the details of a framework or where we are on this concerns me a great deal that you really do not know. And our province doesn't know what's on the go with climate change.
1: I appreciate the time, Mike. Thank you.
6: Thank you, Patty. Have a great week.
1: You too. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye now. All right. No. All right uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, today might be a good one to get on the show. Topic entirely up to you. If, if you're in the St. John's Metro region, 709 273 or elsewhere, it's toll free long distance 1 888 590 VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break and coming back. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Mike, you're on the air.
7: Good morning, Patty. Paddy, I'd like to uh, get whoever is here, got a computer in front of them, type in C-R-O-N-Y-C-A-P-I-T-A-L-I-S-N. It's crony capitalism, which is what we have now into our government in our health under the Compass Group. I can't go and tell the people of Newfoundland after 20 years of fighting this and all uh, the rest in the length of time we got an open line. Uh, I've gone to everybody pretty well. Uh, the unions uh, to Jerry Earl, to Nurses Union, to the NLMA, the Medical Association. I've gone to the uh, uh, the. President, the CEO of healthcare, the board, the board directors. I've gone to all of these people. Any one of them could have stopped this crony capitalism takeover of our healthcare system. We're into it now that we're into a state of blackmail. They've got control of all the food and everything else and all the materials, everything that goes into our healthcare system. And we got no say over how much money that they make over it. They're bad for any economy, but they get in here and they take it over, and it's become a reality here in Newfoundland. That who can we go to now to stop it? We're gone into a state of uh, I don't know what you might call it. Probably no way out of it. It's going to take years. They got us up for blackmail, and that if we kick them out. They're going to take the contracts with them as long as parts for our food that we can't cook the food in their kitchens. It takes a year to transform the kitchens. They've got it there that we don't pay them uh, every day, 30 days or whatever. We have to pay them the highest percentage of interest under Canadian law, which is somewhere around 60%. Like I said, I can't go into all the details of probably about a 1,000 pages, uh, hundreds of different contracts involving the Compass Group and a group of companies like uh, Compass One Healthcare, Crothaw, Morrison Healthcare, Paladin Security, Vinci Parker. All of these all have private confidential contracts with the government that they will not give out. Now, here we are into this biggest kind of a mess with all of those people involved. They're going to walk away from all this with the biggest kind of pensions and got us into the biggest mess, the biggest scandal of ever of Newfoundland and this takeover by the Cummins Group. And who do we have to get us out? There's nobody. We don't have a leader. We don't have a leader in the Liberals. We don't have a leader in the PCs. So now how do we get out of this mess and get rid of the Cummins Group? It's going to take years and hundreds of millions of dollars leaving this province now to get us out. Nobody would listen. Nobody would do anything. The press would not do anything. If the press had been uh, aggressive and put in what is written in black and white, instead of that, they're frightened to death. Everybody is frightened to death to say anything. The premier is a coward. He will not come out. He knows about it now. I know that he knows about it. Before I gave him... Uh, benefited the doubt and that he inherited but now it's up to them to get us out but how do they get us out that is the thing because right now everybody basically has to go all the leaders of Eastern Health the Auditor General the uh, Chief Procurement Officer all of these people here had a role to play that could have stopped
1: this well you're not getting out until the contract expires
7: well, no, but see, they've broken the contracts and that if we had enforcement by the Auditor General and the Chief Procurement Officers, that they're supposed to abide by the rules and regulations of this province. And uh, so they've broken the contracts and what they've had. There's enough loopholes there that uh, we could get out of the contracts. But uh, if we get out of the contracts... Then we're into it that they have a valve that they got a patent on for processing the food that they can take with them that the, that the government has no rights to. So how do we cook the food for our hospitals and that and stuff? This is where now we're going to a point that these people are blackmailing us. They're a criminal organization. They're, you know, they take over this. Well, Newfoundland is not the first place that had them taken over. They come in here and they bribe the politicians. They bribe the boards, but the boards.
1: Uh, Bribe?
7: Yeah, bribe. They're known for bribery around the world. They're known for bribery, bribing government officials and uh, those leaders of institutions and that and everything else. Uh, Newfoundland is not the first place. And they've been charged. They've had, well, they're they're good at hiding their scandals and paying off people. And here at Tom Osborne, Tom Osborne said, "Now uh, I I got to get this right because I got a job believing what he said with this uh, virtual care contract. He said that, like that the commerce group were going to get it, and then he was going to talk to uh, Doctor Young it, with the association that had the other other uh, request for proposals in. So what's he going to do now? Going to pay off Doctor Young to say nothing?" Well, but he's still giving the contract to, to Commerce Group. This is where I don't understand what's, gonna, what's happening yeah, But that
1: right meeting now. is not going to be between uh, Dr. Todd Young and uh, Minister Osborne. It's going to be between Dr. Young and the Procurement Office.
7: Oh, well, that's what I don't know. Like I said, I, I, I'm open on that one yet as to what, what's going to happen with it. But uh, like I said, it's still gone to the Commerce Group. So, I, I don't know, uh, it's, uh, like I said, look, uh, Patty, uh, as you know, and if, uh, you know, you're reading up on to it, and so should all Newfoundlanders. The Newfoundlanders have got to get and read and educate themselves of this type of government, of what they're doing, and it's all for the, the point of uh, people who believe that Everybody should work for the benefit of an elite few. And
1: all right, so I appreciate the time, Mike. Another thirty seconds before I take another call.
7: Well, Teddy, all, all I can do is begging people of Newfoundland to educate themselves onto this. Look into it for yourselves. Go in on the Compass Group. Go in on crony capitalism. Take a look and see what's going on here in Newfoundland. It's not a free. We don't live in a free di- uh, democracy anymore a free trade, a free market competition, that's all suppressed, and everything is just bought from the Commerce Group.
1: Appreciate the time, Mike. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. You You know, when we see expansion in the private offerings, you know, there's clinics here in the country where you can put $25,000 down and get your hip or your knee replaced. There's long been, of course, dentists as part of healthcare who are, you know, private contractors. For all intents and purposes, GPs in their own clinics are subcontractors of the government. But inside the world, like, you know, I think there's legitimate questions about entities like the Compass Group because... How can anyone explain to me that we don't have the horsepower and or the ability to set up things like dietary uh, issues regarding healthcare? Uh, why not? I mean, we did in the past. How can that not be the case anymore? And then with, you know, trying to fill in the gaps with things like virtual care expansion, whether that be Teladoc or Medicuro or anything else, it's been in play for a while. I think the pandemic shone a very bright light on how that's going to be part of the public health care offering in the future. People, I think, rightfully have questions about the amount of money we're paying for the 811 service. Service, when how many times does someone call and what, what happens? They get referred to a family doctor. So basically, we paid two bills for the same reason. Anyway, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, the House leader for the official opposition is Andrew Scheer. He's in the queue, and then we're speaking
0: with you. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings.
1: Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number
0: four. Let's thank you more to the Conservative Party member for
1: Regina Capel. He's the House Leader of the Official Opposition. That's Andrew Scheer. Good morning, Mr. Shear, You're on the air. Good morning. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you. How about you?
8: Oh, pretty good. Uh, trying to get caught up on some sleep. <laughs> Self-imposed. Self-inflicted wound. <laughs> <laughs> we, had, uh, we, we had a voting marathon as you probably know by now last week uh, conservatives are doing everything we could to fight the carbon tax and uh, we're going to try again this week with uh, as many tools at our disposal to block justin trudeau's economic agenda that's causing so much pain and misery on canadians
1: so, inside the world of the opposition, which is a critically important role, but what do you say to the argument that this is political theatre? I mean, the government, but the minority parliament and the Supply and confidence Agreement and every party in the House is side with a price on pollution as opposed to the Conservatives. So, basically, you're opposing what everyone else in the House is in favour of, so this is no more than theatre.
8: No, not at all. I mean, we, uh, we have an obligation to fight for Canadians who are suffering from the carbon tax, and uh, it's causing more and more misery on hardworking Canadians. After eight years of Justin Trudeau, we see working Canadians who, who, who have never had to resort to social safety nets before uh, going to food banks or moving out of their homes and moving back in with their parents. Uh, the carbon tax is, is a big part of that. It, it is responsible for almost 33% of the extra inflation that is plaguing Canadians and we were sent to Ottawa to do a job and the opposition has certain things it can do to help highlight the failures of a government or to delay the government's agenda and that's exactly what we did and uh, you know throughout the 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 whole course of the exercise we we were hoping that public pressure might be come to bear on on some of those uh, NDP and Liberal MPs who may represent rural areas or First Nations or uh, have heard the heart-wrenching story from their own constituents and give them the opportunity to reflect on their mistake and uh, and join us in opposing the carbon tax.
1: The Bank of Canada uses pretty interesting numbers because there was a lot of conflation going on out there regarding inflationary numbers and pressures and two different answers to two different questions from the Bank of Canada. They say backing out the carbon tax, you know, is less than 1% of the inflation that we're seeing over the course of, you know, and that uh, that would cease to be an issue after one year. So how do you, you know, there's a disparity across the country too. It's vastly different implications here versus maybe in the prairies versus the West coast of the country so how do you use the bank of canada's numbers when they talk about carbon tax and the uh inflation
8: well you you are absolutely right that there's a lot of numbers that 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 float around but remember when we're dealing with inflation uh, a percentage point is huge uh right now inflation is running at about 3.8 percent target is two percent isn't the
1: most recent uh, number 3.1 percent though in the update uh, from last week
8: Sorry, uh, uh, yes, but uh, I was was factoring in the the food inflation, which which was higher than that. But but when we look at what the uh, Bank of Canada governor said at committee, he said that the carbon tax was responsible for 0.6 of a percentage point of that inflation. So if we have to get from now 3.1 down to 2, uh, that's a huge uh, percentage of, of, of of what Canada needs to do to get back to target. When we get closer to target, then interest rates can start coming down. So you know, it might look like 0.6% isn't a huge number, but it's 0.6% out of, you know, now 1.1 or before 1.8. That's where we come up with the 33%. And again, those interest rates won't start coming down until we get closer uh, to target. The argument that it's a one-time drop, I mean, (laughs) if I have to lose 20 pounds, and I lose 5 pounds this month, that is a one-time drop of 5 pounds, but that's 5 less pounds that I don't have to lose next month, you know? So, uh, I don't buy this argument that it's, it's insignificant just a one-time drop it's a huge component of inflation it's also becoming a bigger and bigger percentage of, of home heating bills you know uh, in many parts of the country as you rightly point out there's some disparity but in many parts of the country the carbon tax itself is now approaching 20 25 even 30 percent of the overall total heating bills that Canadians are having to pay so it, it's a huge chunk
1: As it pertains to the carbon tax, you know, people talk about, is it a levy? Is it a tax? Regardless, it's money out the door or out of my pocket, but... How do you use the calculator that talks about, you know, low and middle income families, and they'll actually receive, this not my numbers, this is the Parliamentary Budget Office, which I think is a pretty reliable source of information. So many Canadians in the neighborhood of 80% will get more back in rebates, which I think speaks to a flawed structure of a carbon tax, period. But some 80% of families will get back more in rebate than they paid in carbon tax. So basically this helps the top 20% of earners in the country, basically the top, uh, the richest families. So how do you factor that into the plea to ax the tax?
8: Well, first of all, I should mention that when the government imposes a cost, forces you to pay it and collects it, that's a tax. It doesn't matter what the government tries to call it, a levy or a price, but uh, anytime you don't have a choice in paying something, that's a tax. Uh, What the parliamentary budget officer has also indicated is that the, the government is not calculating the total cost of the carbon tax. So when they come up with that number about who gets what back from the rebate, they're only talking about the direct cost of the carbon tax. So when you see it on your fuel bill or your home heating or, or electricity bill, that's when that's how they calculate that. What the Parliamentary Budget Officer has done is he's gone further and said, okay, what are the knock-on effects of the carbon tax? How does that affect grocery prices? If something has to be shipped or trucked across the country, uh, that's not going to show up on your Individual bill, but it is going to increase the cost of whatever it is that you're buying. And when that calculation is done, the majority of Canadians pay more than they get back. So what we're saying is look, let's just axe the tax for everyone across the board. Let's stop chasing away jobs and investment and forcing Canadians to make tragic choices between heating their homes and putting food on their table. And remember, It's not just staying where it is. The carbon tax is set to go up. Justin Trudeau's plan is to keep hiking the carbon tax year after year. So that's the choice for Canadians. An ever-increasing carbon tax with Justin Trudeau that isn't working to reduce emissions, or a Conservative Party led by Pierre Pauly that's going to axe the tax once and for all, for all Canadians.
1: This is a pretty notable conservative. And this is in reference to Alberta and their oil sands and the price on carbon. And so it goes like this. I think it's a model on which you could uh, possibly go broader. The Alberta model imposes a price on emissions for companies that don't meet energy efficiency targets. These companies can also pay that money into a clean energy research fund. And the quote continues. It's not a levy. It's a price. And there's a tech fund in which the private sector makes investments. So look, that's what Alberta has done. That's a model that's available. But you know, as I say, we're very open to see progress on this on a continental basis former Prime Minister Stephen Harper?
8: Well, what we're dealing with is the carbon tax that we have in front of us. That is Justin Trudeau's uh, failed environmental policy that is not helping the government hit emissions targets. It's only increasing the cost of goods. Uh, we're dealing with an inflation crisis caused by Justin Trudeau's deficits and the interest rates that have skyrocketed to fight that. And all I know is when I talk to people in my riding, uh, in, uh, in constituencies across the country when I travel, I'm hearing from Canadians that the carbon tax is taking a bigger and bigger bite out of what's left of their paycheck. So we're going to keep fighting it. We're going to work to scrap it.
1: So so, in the world of curbing or capping emissions, what is the plan? Because we hear, you know, utilising innovation and technology, which of course is also part of what the liberals are proposing. You know, a 40% subsidy here for clean energy issues like green hydrogen. So, replace it with what? Because it once was a conservative tool. You know, market pressures, price point pressure would be, you know, changing behaviours or modifying behaviours. So, what do you replace it with?
8: Well you know it, we, we have to get back to a culture of yes in this country. there are lots of projects that have been proposed that aren't looking for uh, a subsidy uh, or not looking for government to uh, to, to underwrite the cost and uh, and and this current government is saying no. Uh, there's a great project in in Atlantic Canada to uh, harness the power of ocean waves uh, with a tidal electricity generation station, and th- that was not approved by this government. Canada right now, as the government's going around signing deals with manufacturers to make batteries for electric vehicles. Canada doesn't actually mine any lithium after eight years of Justin Trudeau. We have lithium deposits all across the country, but we can't develop them because of Justin Trudeau's regulatory uh, burdens. So what the Conservatives are saying is that we can get back to a culture of yes, we can remove the gatekeepers, get clean, green projects approved, and let's get Canada developing the natural resources that the world's going to need uh, as we uh, as we develop and improve our uh, technologies relating to electric vehicles and other types of alternatives.
1: Yeah, the the latest data, projection data on emissions that we're going to maybe hit our 2030 uh, climate-related goals. So anyway, there's a lot to that conversation as we know. I'd like to get you to react to this story. That's pretty new, and I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it. It's a report from CIES, indicating that India, the Indian government, bought all sorts of memberships in the conservative uh, leadership race, which mean Patrick Brown had dropped out, and as a former leader, that kind of feels like election meddling to me, because when we talked about China in the most recent federal election and the interference and some 11 MPs had been unduly influenced, and then the stories regarding Michael Chong and Han Dong and otherwise, and your leader refused to get a security clearance required to see all of the intimate knowledge, what do you make of that story of uh, India interfering in your own party's leadership contest?
8: Well, let me just clarify one, one thing. It's uh, it's not that Pierre was, uh, was not granted security clearance. It's that he did not want to abide by Justin Trudeau's gag order. And that is, the, uh, there's a huge difference there. Had he taken the briefings, he would not have been able to talk about it. Of course, we're trying to shine a light on foreign interference. Uh, conservatives believe that uh, the best way to fight interference by foreign state actors is to be open and honest and transparent about it. And that's not what we saw from the Liberal government uh, over the, uh, Chinese interference uh, allegations that were made from ceases. Uh we, we saw the government stonewalling that and trying to fight accountability and transparency. So we're on the side of, of opening things up and uh, as these, as more reports or information is made available, we'll be taking a look at that and seeing what can be done so that Canadians can have confidence in their electoral system.
1: But of course the gag order wouldn't be a Justin Trudeau gag order, it would be intelligence protection because everyone, regardless of the party that you represent, no one wants to be. Tra- the country's position in the world, you know, show our hand, the implications with our relationship inside the five eyes. So I'll go back to the Indian government uh, absolutely meddling in your own party's leadership contest. And it looks like that's the reason why, you know, for instance, Mr. Brown dropped out so quickly. And as a former leader, is that not of concern to you?
8: Any aspect any type of, of interference by foreign governments or or organizations or any kind of uh, entities is uh, is very concerning and we certainly uh, want to hear more uh, about what the government has to say about this but I, just to go back to to the issue it, it's other countries don't take the same approach as, uh, as Justin Trudeau. When they have these types of allegations, they are very open and public about it because that is the only way that you, that is one of the best ways that you can fight against these types of things is so that the public can be made aware, so that people within various diaspora communities can be made aware that this is a tactic by a foreign state government. So it's not a question about damaging our relationship with our Five Eyes partners because our Five Eyes partners go well further than what Canada does to disclose information and make sure both Canadians uh, but we'll, and and political uh, entities like parties or candidates are aware of what the threats are.
1: But why wasn't that the case when the Prime Minister said that you know, the Indian government, through their Indian agents, were responsible for an assassination of a Sikh activist in British Columbia? Now we found out in the United States, all sorts of other stories, including possibly a dozen targets for assassination at the hands of Indian agents. So when the Prime Minister was open with Canadians at that point, he was taken to task. So what you just said doesn't jive with what the reaction was for Mr. Poliev and others when the Prime Minister told us about the implication of the Indian involvement with the assassination. Nation of BC.
8: Well, I'm not sure that you'll find uh, uh, criticism from uh, from from our leader uh, as to how uh, Justin Trudeau informed Canadians uh, about that. Um, and what I will say is that if it goes in stark contrast to how uh, Mr. Trudeau handled the allegations of Chinese interference, where he, where it looks like he was briefed multiple times never disclosed any of that to Canada and also never took any action we're dealing with a situation where there are police stations run by the communist party the communist regime in Beijing all across at least in several cities and we've known about this for months now in some cases over a year and Justin Trudeau hasn't actually taken any action to stop that so you know His actions on this uh, file show that he just does not take it as seriously as our Five Eye partners. And if we want to actually improve our relationship on security files with countries around the world, we need to to have a much more robust response.
1: I must say, I I remain confused about these Chinese police stations, to be uh, quite honest with you. I know we should have no Chinese government presidents outside their embassy, regardless of the city we're talking about in this country. Uh, I appreciate the time this morning.
8: Thank you very
1: much. Take care. Bye-bye. Sandra Sherry is the House Leader for the official opposition and a member for Regina Cabell. Let's take a break. When we come back, lots of time for you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Joyce, you're on the air.
9: Patty, me boy. How are you?
1: Okay. How about you?
9: Oh, don't ask. Uh, Take it back. What? No, it's uh, fine. Thanks for asking. I'm calling about a product I purchased from the shopping channel, and i'm seventy six years old and I thought this would help me a lot, like for cleaning my hardwood floors. Uh, it won't work it anything is like clean this, dump that, do this, or the brush is dirty, and you name it, it's happened, and I've gone through it with a person from the company. And I did everything they told me, and it still doesn't work. They don't want to give me my money back. I bought it from the shopping channel. you got 30 days to return it. But the company... It's an 18-month guarantee with them, and they will not take it back. They want to send me another one, and I told them, it's garbage. I don't want it. I talked to a supervisor. She was no help. I said, can you escalate me to somebody else? And when I talked to another lady, I said, are you management? She said, no, I'm a supervisor. So it's like they're just handing the buck, and they don't want to do a thing for me. And it's very stressful. I had to get my mop out to do my floors because this thing is useless. Can I say the name of the company, Patty? What's wrong with the product? It doesn't work. It keeps cutting out. The battery is not charging. Everything and anything. A red light is flashing all the time on it and it shouldn't be. There's no reason for it.
1: Okay, so you're unwilling to accept a replacement that may indeed work as advertised?
9: No, I don't want one because it doesn't clean the floors anyway. It just doesn't. Okay. So can I say the name of the company? There is an 18-month guarantee, and I want to talk to management. And they said, oh, you didn't buy it directly from us. Therefore, we have to replace it. You can't get your money back. I said, but there's an 18-month guarantee on it. Well, that doesn't matter. You didn't buy it directly from us. I said, it's your product that went to the shopping channel. And there's an 18-month guarantee, and the money still goes to you. So don't give me that excuse, because it's not true
1: well the shopping channel takes a cut and that's one thing people should be aware of is when you buy from a third party you absolutely should understand what the warranty implications are because you might not have the guarantee that it says on the box or that they say on the on the channel or the tv so that's always going to be a concern for folks whether it be amazon the shopping channel or otherwise there is a potential problem with warranties
9: but anyway can i say sure
1: joyce if that's going to make you feel better go ahead
9: It'll make me feel a lot better, I can tell you, because I've been so stressed with these people. I've called two or three times. I went through the whole gamut of trying to get it to work, and it doesn't work. And the thing is heavy. I mean, I've lifted up on the table right to check all this stuff. It's called a Power is by Bissell. It's called Power Clean Turbo for hard floors, wet, dry vat. And I want people to know, don't waste your money.
1: Fair enough. And, you know, with things like that, there's lots of online reviews of different products. Now, they're not always that trustworthy. Some people just go on and say whatever they want. They might not even own one of the products, you know, and there's lots of negativity kicking around as we're all painfully aware. But, Joyce, I'm sorry that it happened to you, and I appreciate the
9: time this morning. Merry Christmas. And, And Merry Christmas. Can I say something else? Quickly. There was a gentleman on talking about dictatorship. Well, I've told you months and last year, too, about the Chinese and Trudeau. Trudeau hasn't got a clue about humanity, and he's on saying how they should stop the Hamas war and hurting people and be nice and be kind and this and... If anybody doesn't know about being kind, it's him. When they had that demonstration in Ottawa, he had people running down old ladies in wheelchairs with horses, the police. I mean, he can't tell about humanity, because you know what? He doesn't give two farts about anybody. There
1: might be a slight difference between what happened in Ottawa versus what's happening in Gaza. I know There's like, oh. there like 20,000 people
9: uh, He doesn't care about the seniors My heart goes out I mean I'm a senior I'm doing pretty good But there are seniors out there starving to death. I heard one man on your talk show Saying how he lived on a loaf of bread for a week I mean uh, in tears I mean it's terrible Patty What's going on People losing their homes, they're losing everything they got, I mean, and these are like middle-income and high-income people also, right? But I'd like the people to know that all this money Trudeau has given to other countries, he flies over with the millions and millions of dollars. And what he's doing, he's not giving them anything. He's money laundering, and they put it in other accounts for him. Don't you worry. I'm on to him. Okay. And he should be locked up.
1: (laughs) Okay. Okay.
9: And anyway, Patty, it's nice to talk to you again. You take care. And I'm hoping this will go. This goes way across Canada. People, don't buy the Bissell. Okay. I also bought a Snow Joe from the Shopping Channel. And man, it looked like it worked perfect. What a piece of junk. I sent it back and it took forever to box it because it was really big. My shovel could work better than that. Don't waste your money, people. Thanks a lot, Joyce. And Merry Christmas you too. to all of Seniors and you're not forgotten about by me. That's all I got to say.
1: Okay, thanks, Joyce. All right, bye bye. Uh, let's roll. Let's go to line number three. Say so good morning to the Executive Director of Advocacy at Munn Student Union. That's Jawad Chowdhury. Good morning, Jawad. You're on the air.
10: Hi, Patty. Good morning. Good How are morning you?
1: to you. I'm doing fine, thanks. How about you?
10: Good. I'm um, so,
1: there were some positive changes made uh, a few years ago regarding the uh, worker shortage out there. International students were allowed to go get full-time jobs. Now at the end of this year, it's going to be all the way back to only allowed to work 20 hours a week. So for the current batch of students, that's going to create a huge problem with trying to meet the cost of living pressures and pay their bills, the rent and groceries and otherwise. What do you think it means in the long term?
10: Well, there's been an announcement uh, that does say that international students, uh, the, the the work limit has been expended till uh, April of 2024. Okay. Um, so. So, yeah, so I I do believe that's a very welcome change. Uh, And, you know, if had that not been in place, I do believe would have created a very unsafe uh, labor environment for international students uh, where, you know, everything is so expensive. People across Canada are struggling uh, because of an affordability crisis. So I think, you know, a lot of international students uh, would have gone on to find under the table um, jobs uh, that that don't provide a, a good labor environment. So I think overall it's very beneficial for international students. I think this is a welcome change, uh, and I think it's going to help international students get a leg up in their career, uh, get that uh, job experience before they graduate, uh, and have equitable opportunities uh, You know, when they graduate for their future here in Canada.
1: When we look at the competitive nature of Memorial University on the tuition front and the student fees, so are you suggesting that this will be a problem nationwide for attracting and hopefully, keeping international students. Or do you think it's uniquely going to be different in this province? And I'm at Morley University.
10: No, absolutely. I think this is a countrywide issue. I think. Uh in Newfoundland and Labrador, we are seeing a decrease in international student numbers, uh, but also across the country. Uh, but there are you know, new international students coming in, and in places like Toronto and Vancouver, we see a lot of homelessness among those new people coming in, because uh, they just can't afford uh, or are, are not finding houses to live in, are not uh, finding avenues to afford their groceries. From
1: where I sit, you know, when we know that the university is aggressively trying to attract international students, they should play a much more primary role in housing issues. You know, there were programs in the past called Home Share, I think is one of them, where an international student would be matched up with a local, possibly a senior, you know, uh, get a cut rate on rent for doing some chores around the home. Do you think that there's any exploration of that particular concept? Because that could really ease some of the housing concerns that international students in particular have.
10: Absolutely. I think I think that's a very innovative idea. I think that could help uh, not just international students, but also community members that are just looking for extra support, uh, especially seniors. You know, uh, this could mean a company for them and, and just, uh, you know, helping them with their tours. So I think that it, it, it's a very uh, innovative solution. I would like to see more um, being done to uh, help achieve that. <sighs>
1: When we talk about international students, so Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Minister, Mark Miller, talking about what they call sometimes puppy mills. You know, people who are coming from other countries to study. It basically happens in Ontario, Quebec, British Columbia, but they're saying that they don't teach programs that provide stable work for students and maybe not even providing a legitimate educational experience. What can you tell us about that concept and whether or not you think that happens in this province?
10: Uh, I I think there's uh, very less instances of that in this province, but uh, it's a bigger issue in bigger cities where some international students who probably don't have the intention of studying or have the intention of studying but are not fully committed to it um, come to Canada, see the difficulties associated with it, uh, and just want to work uh, to support themselves and their families. Uh, I don't see anything wrong with it, but I do understand that they're violating um, their study permit requirements. Requirements, but it's, it's a necessity for some. Um, uh, you know, they, they just need to work to support their families and end their stay here in Canada.
1: What else is on your desk as the Executive Director for Advocacy?
10: Uh, Well, I have changed office, so I'm now the Executive Director of Campaigns at (laughs) Mansu. So we do do a lot of work around uh, tuition. Uh, We do a lot of work around uh, sexual violence on campus. We do a lot of work around uh, just equitable opportunities on campus.
1: I appreciate making time for the program this morning, Jawad. Anything else before we say goodbye?
10: Thank you. thank you for having me i think you know uh, some of the welcome changes from ircc uh, are going to Potentially, be really good for international students. I do. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm all for uh, full-time work permits for international students, and I do believe they need an equitable opportunity here in Canada in order to succeed. Uh, because you just can't expect uh, an international student with uh, part-time work experience uh, to succeed when uh, their peers have much more experience in the field. Uh, so I think you know these are some welcome changes, and I hope to see uh, them made permanent so that the consistency continues and international students have the opportunities that they need to succeed
1: thanks for the time this morning stay in touch thank you patty you're welcome bye-bye as jawa chowdhury director of campaigns at memorial university's students union okay how are we doing out there david Let's get it going.
0: When we take this news break, you pick up the phone, speak with David in the queue, and off we go. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, George. You're on the air.
3: Good
11: morning. Good morning to you. Uh, First time calling. Kind of nervous. Take your time. Uh, I was calling about, I guess you call it racism. And it goes back, I'd say, to the early 70s to prison. And it all started with, there was four fellers. We went home to Cape Harrison. We live here, uh, my parents live here in Goose Bay. And we went home to Cape Harrison in the early 70s. And then there was four fellers there. And they was there from Mukoviq. And they tried to kick us out of our home, Cape Harrison. And so they got the fishery officer to come up from McCoy and see what was going on. And there was two fellers adamant trying to kick us out of our home. But the other two fellers were the fishery officer's sons, and they was told, but what was going on so he sent them home and the other two kept it up and kept it up trying to kick us out of our home and then a couple of days later there's a bunch of RCMP showed up in the helicopter and fisheries and all this kind of stuff They're going to kick us out of our home
1: because of what uh
11: Because we moved back there. My parents moved in there from from the coast in the 50s after the war for to go to work. And so we moved back there in the 70s when we was all big enough to go back to Cape Harrison. And so they tried to kick us out of home. And this two people kept it up and kept it up. And there was RCMP, like I say, RCMP and fisheries turned up there, trying to kick us out of our home. My mother had paperwork showing that we own, but she owned the land. Cape okay, Harrison. And so, I'm going to fast forward now for a little bit to the 90s. And in the 90s, mid-90s, I guess, me and my brother, me and my brother commercial fishermen, by the way, and in the 90s, we went up, we, the boat came up for sale in cartridge, boat license, old deal. And we went up to the fisheries here in Goose Bay, asked the fisheries officer could be transferred the license from southern Labrador to northern Labrador. And so she got this great big book out, opened up on the desk, and we sat down and she opened up the book, first page, no, can't do that. She went right back. Went through all the pages, no, no, can't do that, can't do that. And so we thanked her for her time, said we can't do anything about that, no. So me and my brother stand up, turn around, going to walk out the door, and my brother said to, her, said to me, he said that we're to stop CBC and say a couple months for nine, eh? And with that, she opened up this great big book, pointed right to the line. And so you can you can you can train, train, you can transfer that. I don't know why she I don't know why she said I said that. I could imagine why she said that you know? Hey as uh, I don't know if it's a Pedro Pedro thing or just her or what? But there was no way we could transfer that license, you
1: think? Okay, so was it technically uh accurate that you could not transfer the license?
11: But well, we, well, she said, there's no way we could transfer the license until we mentioned CBC. Then the book opened, open, finally, right away at the line said, Oh, you can transfer that. I don't know why she said that, said that but anyway. So, a, year, a couple of years later, we went to go, well, not a couple of years, a couple of months later, we went to get the loan for our boat, our enterprise. $1.3 million, and everything was approved except for our government, our New Nazi government. At the time, was the LIA, Labor Inuit Association. And so, we went through all the crowd coming from Indian, Northern Bears, Nacoa, and all them fellas, and the Royal Bank was here. So we had a royal meeting down to the Royal Bank about the boat and the loan and all this stuff. So we can get the loan and get the boat. And when he was there waiting for a representative from LADC, he well, was business arm of l a a manager to come. And he never turned up. And so the bank manager said he must have got hold up somewhere We'll go on with the meeting and see what he sees after. So, we had the meeting, first fellow to go on, come aboard was the bank manager, it was 600 and something thousand dollars. He said, yes, Indian Northern Affairs come come aboard. And they said, yes, another $250,000. And Indian Northern Affairs come aboard, same thing. Another $250,000 will And so we finished the meeting, and stand up, by shook our hands, but you burned the fuel in the spring, hey. And so a couple of days later, Larry called the bank manager. Said we were turned down by over, our, our uh, business part of our lia. And he said we well, yes asked him why, and he didn't know. He couldn't get answer to it. So I don't know what was
1: up with me. So where are we now? What's the status of any of this now, or has it been coming gone?
11: No, no, it's still, it's still, well, this all got to do with whatever land claims. See, mate, the land claim negotiators come to the fishermen. There's eight of us, eight license holders. Right? Well, I wasn't licensed license holder then, my father was. We got my father's license. And we, uh, hold on, I lost my train of thought there for a second. Okay. Yeah, and then we, uh, Let's see. Trying to get all this straightened out eh. But no, couldn't get nothing straightened out with it. And so all this is hooked up in our land claims, eh? So the land claims always come to us, license holders, and that's for our licenses, so they can get quotas and, and 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 that for our licenses. So we all agreed, gave them our licenses. For they all agreed, gave them the licensees. And when it was all said and done, we never got no quarters out of it. Our government seemed like they took over quarters and turned them into communal quarters. And so, as commercial fishermen, how come we was left out? You know what I mean? From, from the federal. If every other fisherman in Canada, east and west coast and north, up north got licenses, these quotas and their fishing license, so I had no license How come we never got no quotas.
1: I have no earthly idea george
11: well there's there's something wrong there. hey, it sounds like it, yeah, yeah, there's <laughs> so I guess the racism it goes farther than here then it goes right to other way. hey. Graysom is living well in the highest house in the lane.
1: I really have no idea what to say to this specifically, George. You're the person who's lived it. It's far be it for me to say it's not or it is, but it certainly sounds unfair and an unlevel playing field, that much I can tell.
11: Yes, and it's it been going on right from the 70s, early 70s. I was only about 10, 11 years old when now this started. Right? And I can remember all that just like it was yesterday when somebody tries to come kick you out of home. That sets in your mind, eh? You know, and still and it's still going on today. And the two fellas what was trying to kick us out of our home was is our land claim negotiators.
1: Does that issue have a link with the quota, the fishing quota? Or
11: I would imagine it, do, because they've been trying to kick us out of home ever since then, right till now. And then, and then after my mother died, they tried to take the blood out of her, saying what? she wouldn't know what she was, you know?
1: Sorry, what does that mean? Our land claims. Yeah, but, right. but after your mother died, they tried to do what, I'm sorry?
11: take the blood out of her, like, like, like her status, take her status away. Oh, okay. Right? And this is how far they're going, you know?
1: George, sorry that you're going through this and these are your experiences. Uh, I have to get to the break. Would you like to say anything else quickly before I go? Uh,
11: no, that's kind of it. I guess, because, well, if I think of anything else, well, I'm kind of nervous. You ain't You the first time on the radio. But uh, I think something else, I'll
1: give you all You're welcome to do it. I appreciate the time. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Let's see. Seeing some notes from folks uh, in Labrador, talk about the fact that there has been, I think, an arrest made, but there was a perceived threat against uh, one of the schools and the concern that's being brought forward by some parents is that there wasn't a what they consider to be a timely communication between the school and or the board versus when the parents were made aware that there was a perceived or a potential threat against the school. I'm going to try to dig into that a little further and see if I can break down the timelines. Uh, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say so to the Executive Director at the Aging Disorder Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Paul Toomey. Paul, you're on the air.
12: Hi, Patty. How are you this morning? Very well. Thanks. How about That's you? Good. Thanks very much. And Thanks for taking my call. Uh, just wanted to put in a final plug for our last um, fundraiser for the year, our Christmas flyaway sweep. Thursday of this week is the last day to purchase tickets. They're $50 each. There are only 200 tickets in total available, so the odds are pretty good. We do have some tickets left, and uh, the prize is a trip for two anywhere Air Canada flies, including Hawaii, Mexico, and the Caribbean, plus a night at the Comfort Airport Inn here in St. John's. And of course, as always, uh, the proceeds from this ticket sweep and all of the other fundraising that we do throughout the year. Um, goes to support the programs and services that we offer for individuals and families who are dealing with eating disorders throughout this province. So we'd appreciate a final push uh, between now and uh, Thursday evening to see if we can move a bunch more of those tickets and reduce uh, I guess uh, the the amount of money that we're going to need to offer our programs for the remainder of this year and going into the new year.
1: Usually some of those uh, are very attractive destinations are backed out or not included in these types of prizes, so that's a, a real coup, I think, to get those.
12: Yeah, Air Canada and Air Canada Foundation have been very supportive of us for the past number of years uh, in the sense that they have included those. And you're absolutely right. They are generally backed out. But uh, for some reason, they see the worthiness of our cause and the the funds that it generates, and they've been willing to uh, leave those in. Uh, So uh, we're very thankful to them for that. And uh, we'd uh, really like to have a uh, final big push on those ticket sales.
1: Sounds good. How would you characterize 2023 in the fundraising world?
12: In the fundraising world, it's, it's had its challenges um, and we're finding it more and more towards the end of the year that uh, the, the, the same value is not there. We have been fairly successful this year and mainly because we were able to bring back a couple of our major fundraisers that had uh, gone off our radar screen for a number of years we brought back our gala in june and we brought back the uh, what was always a very popular event our concert of hope uh, featuring the masterless man in october and that's allowed us to maintain uh, levels of fundraising that are at or near where we've been um, in in previous years, and we're very thankful for that. Uh, However, we are still going to find ourselves in a situation that even if we we hold status quo with fundraising next year, we're still going to be dependent on... um Government coming through with some additional support for us to be able to uh, offer all of our programs and services. So the challenge continues to be there, and I have no doubt it's going to be just as difficult, if not more so, in 2024.
1: Thursday is the deadline. There's only 200 tickets in print, so pretty good odds to win a pretty luxurious prize. I appreciate the time, Paul.
12: Yep, Patty, and uh, to get a ticket. Just call our number here, 709 500 or email us at info at edfnl.ca.
1: Thanks for this. Good luck.
12: Thanks, Patty. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye. Paul Toomey, Executive Director at the Eating Disorder Foundation. All right, let's keep rolling. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Ian Sullivan. You're on the air.
13: Mr. Patrick Daly, how are you doing this morning? Best
1: kind. Good to hear from you. Uh, it's good to talk
13: to you too, buddy. Uh, reason I'm calling you this morning, Paddy, uh, I know you've been around the senior hockey in this province for a number of years, and uh, I'm sure you know the name Ryan DeRozier. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the Breakers uh, drafted Ryan in the last draft, uh, first overall. And for your audience, Ryan has played over 10 years of senior hockey in this province uh, with Clarenville and Deer Lake and all that. Uh, he was uh, dean, he was an import at the time, coming away. Uh, he, when he moved here, he started teaching. You know, he uh, had a child here. And uh, just a number of years ago, he took a job at West. So we're bringing him flying back and forth all over the country, all over the states. Uh, so anyway, the breakers found out that the day of the draft, uh, H&L moved his status from a non-import to an import. And I don't know if you can remember the the issues with imports and non imports back when you were sitting on the executive board with us a few years ago.
1: Oh yes, I remember. So doesn't Ryan have a primary residence here? Indeed he do, Patty. I think I thought, he, I thought he lived in Torbay or something.
13: Yes, he actually he lives in airport Heights. Okay. So if you look at the regulation for an import it that... Uh, you had to prove that the, the gentleman has moved here for n- uh, non-professional reasons other than hockey. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we're not bringing him in here to play hockey. Ryan has been an integral part of senior hockey in this province for a number of years, all right? Uh, so, so anyway, when we drafted him first overall, we went to H&L, and they were like, no, he's an import. And we are like, how is he an import? The man played here for years. He was deemed non-import status. You know, he's had teaching in a number of schools. He, he's been involved in, you know, he's he, integral part of hockey. He's been involved in Yitman's hockey, extreme hockey, you know. Uh, everybody knows him. So we found out that h l went and, and changed his status to an import as soon as 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 soon as they knew that we were going to draft him. So then we went and put together a pile of documentation. We had to get his flight um, bills from his house, his text bills from the city, and we got all his flight lads. And the show, like the man, is here. He has a little boy named Will. He, he, his child lives here. He's back and forth. He He's here over six months of the year, if you look at his life. So we get an email this morning saying, no, he's still in import and he can't play with you. Now tell me how unfair that is and how what a black eye oh, to senior hockey that is.
1: I mean, I, I don't get it. As, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I understood the rules, you're right. If you're brought here f- as sole purposes to be a hockey player, and, you know, the boys prop you up and find you a job and find you an apartment, that, that's vastly different than what Ryan's life has been like. So that doesn't jibe with the definition, as I understand it, as an import versus non-import. I don't get it.
13: Yeah, well, Teddy, you knows what wh- who makes the decisions and how the decisions are made in a lot of cases. It's not for the betterment to seeing your hockey, Paddy. You know's what it's for the betterment of, for their buddies or for
1: themselves. Senior hockey's a tangle. I mean, it always has been.
13: That, it's not gonna get any better. And then you get them bags of soot out of there that are making these dis- unethical decisions. Right? It's just not right. Right? And now we have a a, a gentleman that flew home the weekend, he's he was home, he's little boy, he was supposed to come out and watch him play hockey up the floor the weekend and play for us. And now we had to tell him he can't play hockey. On, on foolishness the man played for hockey for 10 years it basically boils down to the Southern Tour Breakers after winning herder and H&L hey, and other people in charge that don't want him playing for us
1: right well, I'm not going to argue that point because as far as I would be concerned, and if someone had to put it on my desk, is Ryan an import or non-import, he sounds like a non-import based on what I understand his life has been, I mean, flying away to work is, is akin to telling me that. Okay, so I live in Bay Bulls, but I work in uh, Alberta, but because I'm flying to Alberta all the time every couple of weeks and I, I'm not a, no longer a local, I mean, it doesn't make any sense, right? People have to travel for work sometimes.
13: Yeah, so you know, like it's just it, it, it's un- it's unbelievable. That's the case. You know, I had to talk to you about this morning. I know me and you were sat on on the board of senior hockey, and we dealt with a lot of issues together. That's, <laughs> that's a fact. <laughs> yeah. So you know, and I, it's just people need to know. Like sometimes, you know, the people making these decisions are not making it for senior hockey, and they gotta give their head a shake. You know, especially in this case. For example. There's two, there's two fellas that were in the draft earlier this year. So when when the other teams, they were from outside the province. So when the other teams uh, got their status put from import to non-import, one guy, one guy just had his name on a lease agreement with his with his girlfriend on an apartment. That would say, okay, you're non-import. All right, perfect. Another guy said he, he just moved down. His mom has moved home here. She's from Newland, so she moved with him. He didn't have to prove anything. Okay, you're a non-import. In this case. I send an email with 50 attachments with documents and that on it showing how, you know, how he's been here and everything, and and it just comes back denied. No reason, no nodding. Right? Yeah. It's, It's crazy. It's crazy.
1: Yeah, it's unfortunate that these things happen. Uh, I've been at the table when uh, similar issues and decisions have been made, and it's a head-scratcher, and it's extremely frustrating. So just before we let you go, Ian, one of the great things about At The Rink is, you know, went from being the mobile arena to the Kenny Williams. I've always had a soft spot for that.
13: Oh, yeah. You know, so we're all keen. I love him, it. and it's great. And we had new manager up to now, Patty. Megan's as well, taking over Men's in the role. And you know, Megan's been around the hockey world here in New Zealand for a long time, and we'll support her. Her running in the rink for a long time into the future.
1: Kenny had a long uh, attachment, of course, with the breakers, but people should realize that Ken Williams was one of the driving forces of what, female hockey in this province as well. yeah, so,
13: yeah, yeah big time, big time. Uh, absolutely yeah. big
1: time. Ian, good to have you on the show. Sorry to hear about Ryan. And he's a heck of a hockey player too. Too bad he's caught in the crosshairs of this nonsense.
13: Yeah, poli- po- hockey politics. I mean, all knows about that,
1: don't we? That we do. Appreciate the time, right. Ian. Stay in touch. All right. Okay, thanks, buddy. All Bye. right, bye-bye. That's an interesting one. Uh, let's take a break for the news. Wind energy after this. Don't go away. Your
0: voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation.
9: If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day.
0: Have your say weekday morning, starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome
1: back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Dr. Francis Scully, you're on the air.
14: Oh, hello, Paddy, and thank you so much uh, for taking my call. Can you hear me?
1: Yes, I can. Go ahead.
14: Great. Okay, thank you so much. I just want to mention, I heard earlier that Alex Newhook had a bad injury, and I'm just so sorry, and I want to mention that his mother, Paula, was wonderful to me when I was very ill. Uh, she's a social worker at the Cancer Centre and wonderful person, and I'm just sorry that Alex was injured. But anyway, I was calling in about... Um, the uh, um, an article that was published in the uh, sorry, it's in the Halifax Journal um, written by Joan Baxter and I will send it to you Patty in an email because it's quite long um, but it does discuss this whole business of this um, you know, Port-au-Port Peninsula uh, wind to hydrogen to ammonia project which I have been trying to understand with a lot of other people and makes no sense to me. Um, And uh, um, what, so this person, Joan Baxter, interviewed a a gentleman named Michael Liebrich, who's uh, British and who has done many things. And he was the keynote speaker at World Hydrogen in 2022. And the start of our article is Hydrogen Hype History Will Have a Good Laugh at Us. Uh, And right now, I don't think there's much to laugh about because I do know the economy here is really in trouble. People are really hurting, and we cannot afford to make any foolish decisions. Um, But what this person, Michael Lieberich, says is that, uh, and he has a diagram about cost effectiveness of switching to, he's got a ladder of switching to hydrogen. And um, so... He basically does all the math to say that uh, creating a massive wind farm to switch. He thinks using wind energy in, in, the, in where, where we are makes a lot of sense. So um, And that obviously makes sense to all of us because we certainly have lots of wind. So he thinks the wind energy part is a great idea. He says using wind energy to, to make uh, hydrogen and convert it to ammonia and then ship it to um europe makes no sense at all because we're just making very expensive fertilizer and um it's not going to be cost effective and here's all the numbers so i'm just wondering if there's any part of what i'm saying that is of interest to you and then i'll try and answer that sorry
1: no problem i mean i think all the moving parts of these proposals are of interest to me because there's a lot of unknowns it's as simple as that we understand a variety of other industries because we have experience with them but this one we don't now wind energy as a concept for renewable energy is not new we understand how wind turbines work but the additional concept of electrolysis hydrogen and then shipped via ammonia across the atlantic ocean is something that we really don't know a whole whole lot about there's big questions regarding even the business model don't take my word for it the germans themselves have set aside 1.2 billion dollars to help sus- subsidize the cost of green hydrogen so they see it as a concern before they've even imported any of it so there's lots of things that yet to be fully understood
14: yes thank, thank you so much so I, w- I will actually send you this long and helpful uh, article but i think the key issues are that this expert on hydrogen says that um, you know, maximally, uh, hydrogen will com- contribute maybe... It's currently 2% and it'll go up perhaps to 13%. But that the reason that um, Risley and his group are pushing this is they are expecting to get huge federal subsidies. And that's what I want to talk about. So right now, Canada is planning to give $20 billion to oil and gas in subsidies, right? And the amount we already give... And subsidies to oil and gas is unbelievable. And another 19 something billion for these uh, totally dis- unproven experimental uh, carbon um, capture industrial projects. And I think this is one of them. Uh, now, that's a lot of money. And I think we could do a lot for tourism, for uh, local. Um, You know what? What this person says, and what I hear from every everyone, is that switching to home heating using electricity uh, and these mini splits and so on, and makes apparently makes a lot of environmental and economic sense. And uh, training people to do this work would be great as part of a just transition. Um, And I don't understand why we're not really looking at investing into, you know, why would we take such risks? Like, why are we going for risky investments when we're in crisis? You know, we're definitely in crisis. Uh, I'm in crisis. Everybody I know is in crisis. So why would we risk investing in something that's very iffy.
1: John Risley himself has said that, you know, there's a couple of things, and the is really not quite very pleased with some of the way the story has been crafted, you know, talking about a delay in getting the project up and running. But, I mean, these are direct quotes come from the managing director, Stephen Leet. based on infrastructure needs on the other end, you know, technology for offloading and distribution of the product. So, they've acknowledged that, you know, they're not even quite ready to hit the targets that World Energy initially set out. They've also said quite clearly before there's a final investment decision. There has to be the finalization of that forty percent tax subsidy. Now, all the same, that tax subsidy only flows when the power is being created and the product's being created. So if they run into a business model thing, then that's it. The subsidy goes away.
14: Yes, and that's what this person says, this Michael Lieberg says that these people are only interested in something called sorry, I have to look it up. <laughs> stacking. Stacking, subsidy you know, um, sub- um, you know, f- stacking the money they get from, like they're looking to get one twenty-five million from the um, federal government. Now, I think one twenty-five million put into tourism in Port au Port would do a lot, a lot.
1: Yeah, that one hundred twenty-five million—that's not here. That's a company called Everwind, who's about doing the same thing over Nova Scotia. So, but now Everwind has a presence in this province on the Buren Peninsula. But that one hundred twenty-five million dollar loan—that was for a Nova Scotia operation.
14: Okay, so that's why this lady was doing this interview. This this um, journalist, Joan Baxter, right? So she's um, yeah, yeah. So uh, anyway, so but it still comes down to why are we going for a risky, destructive uh, mega project rather than you know investing in smaller multiple projects that will that are much more likely to be successful i mean for sure tourism is not going to harm anybody and could be very beneficial and great for rural development and this is a stunningly beautiful place and there's there's some wonderful uh, success stories so i don't know like i think that money the money that would that we're putting into these carbon capture projects which are very risky could be put into other things that I, I think are far more likely to be benef- beneficial and from a health point of view i mean uh, that the the health consequences of the fact that we're investing in fossil fuels is is absolutely Horrific.
1: Yeah. Now, in this province, the carbon capture is basically $6 million over the course of two or three years to examine the viability or the potential for it. And in the big world of 40% tax subsidy, there's nothing that uh, prohibits domestic proje- projects to be a uh, uh, available to get that subsidy as well. So, you know, there's there's a couple of things that are important to note. Carbon capture is not even a real thing here, and a domestic use project, wind or otherwise, can avail of that clean energy subsidy as well. So it's not just for the big projects like Risley and others are proposing.
14: Oh yeah, well that that is very wonderful to know. Thank you very much. Thanks, thanks for that. Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. I appreciate the time.
14: Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks for all
1: you're doing. Thank my, you. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, and then, you know, I guess it's pretty standard operations, So, You know, with the questions that people are asking, including me, it's not to say that we should never do X, Y, or Z. It's just we're asking questions, and I don't see that to be unhealthy, because folks out there who are absolutely major league cheerleaders for the concept, uh, fair enough and that 's their position i 've got no problem with that, but you know even the province itself, just based on the commentary we 've heard and the boisterous nature with which we entered into a memorandum of understanding and had all of those big wigs on the province 's west coast, it feels like the province is very much bullish on the concept here. You know there 's different types of hydrogens that are produced. The move away from gray, because that won't get any of these subsidies, certainly not in this country, because they're using fossil fuels to generate the hydrogen, you know, for the electrolysis process or what have you. The only way that these proponents are going to be able to avail of that 40% is if they use something that is a renewable, like wind, that makes it green hydrogen. So there's the differences. There's a bunch of different labels re- regarding color attached to different hydrogen products, but the green one here is basically because they're using a renewable source of power. So, again, asking a question doesn't mean that you are vehemently opposed, and there will be some people who simply don't want it where they live, and yes, if all of the three phases come to pass regarding World Energy GH2, it will be a footprint of some 40% of the Port-au-Port Peninsula, so that's not insignificant. Then I, was, oh, I was hoping to dig a little further into the issue regarding how they did their analysis regarding impacts on the bat population, and it's, that's just not about protecting one species or another. Bats play a pretty critical role in the ecosystem, but a gentleman who sent me a lot of info, and I meant to get to it over the weekend, but I got tied up, about how they calculated the risks associated with bats, and we already know there's a bat population concern in the province, so I'll try to find those emails now and get a little deeper into it. Alright, let's check in on the Twitter box. Where are open Openline, you know what to do. Email address is on at VOCM.com, but we still have one more segment coming up where we can take one or two, maybe even three of your calls. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, just in reaction to an email I read during the break, it's how come we haven't been, or I guess I haven't been, talking about the announcement last week regarding a federal cap on emissions in the oil and gas sector? But in fact, I have, at least twice. And I think it was only announced on Thursday. So each day that we've been on, we've spoken to it. The emailer went on to say is, you know, how come we don't bash the government, and that was his word, not mine, bash the government about killing the industry here in this province? the fact of the matter is we have a project approved, Equinor's uh, possibilities or potential out of Beta North, they'll do it or they won't. But then it's regarding this particular cap on emissions. So, When you ask folks who are actually involved in the industry in this province, they say they're not even sure. So the reason why no one's attacking one side of the aisle or another based on this cap on emissions because even Energy NL is not responding to questions on this because they're still trying to figure it out. So is the minister responsible. I would imagine both in natural resources and yes, in the world of uh, climate change and the environment. So until people have had a chance to actually dig in and give us a better understanding exactly what this means for this province, because It's probably going to have a different implication here versus Saskatchewan versus Alberta. So that's the basics. At one point, it looked like there was going to be a target of 42% below 2019 levels. But the framework came out, and it set the twenty thirty emissions at thirty five to thirty eight percent below twenty nineteen issues, and of course, government feeling a little bit gun shy because of a couple of court losses in the recent past, and you know the ones, uh, federal government overreach regarding provincial jurisdiction on things like environmental approvals, also when they t- they labeled plastic as toxic, and of course, the provincial jurisdiction once again versus inside of waste management, and the government took a couple of those losses, and so consequently, I guess that's big part of the reason why they brought forward the levels of the 2030 cap at 35 to 38 versus the 42 that had been long floated that was the target that they were going to set but they didn't a couple of questions regarding the federal dental plan and I get it I'm with you it's been confusing And it's been a long time talking about details of the rollout and, you know, someone asking questions about where they're starting. And they're starting with seniors 87 years of age and older. So that's sort of a strange number to pluck out of nowhere for the beginning of this. And so that's, that's what's going to happen. The opening of the portal for application is going to possibly happen as early as next week. But they're warning that it's still going to take months for people to see their claims evaluated and for benefits to be paid. Then they're moving off to the next targets which of course seniors 65 and older, children under the age of 18 and people with disabilities by June. For the disability category, you have to have an active disability credit in place to be eligible on that front. So they're talking about this impacting some 9 million Canadians that don't hold private insurance. What we can't see happen is a bunch of private plans, uh, insurance plans, go by the wayside just prior to your age group being covered inside of this because that's not the intention. So you can only hope between individuals, and more importantly, corporate Canada don't all of a sudden have some sort of uh, awakening to think, well, you know, maybe, just maybe, we'll just turn to the federal government plan, because on that front, though, there's a net uh, household income threshold that also has to be met, so if your net household income is under $90,000, and you have no private insurance, eventually, the government is getting to you. They're hoping to have all of those who will be covered sometime in 2025, but that's still a long way away for people that are experiencing dental pain today, so if your household income is $70,000 or less, there will be no co-pays required under this particular program, and people will say, you know, what? it's the largest expansion of the health care system in generations, and it absolutely is, and then, you know, asking questions about whether or not this is actually required. When it was initially put forward, and interestingly enough, the member of parliament that uh, tabled this a few years ago was NDP member Jack Harris there is tons regardless if you want to take the time to go look for any of these things there is tons of information out there about the your overall dental health and your overall physical health and mental health so it's very real it's not about giving anyone a big bright smile it's about keeping some of the down to-the road concerns regarding poor dental health with other issues so then the, you know there's not going to be any coverage for uh, cosmetic procedures or what have you because that, that's not what it's for you know one's going to get uh, veneers because they're uh, eligible for this. This particular program so that announcement is today when all the details are out there we will indeed talk about that like we try to talk about anything else also an announcement maybe i'm in the minority uh, curious as to how it's going to go regarding the minister of sport carla Qualtro, an announcement coming today about what the government is going to do for oversight and policing and monitoring the potential for an inquiry regarding abuse in sports the higher up you go as an elite athlete it increases the likelihood to be subjected to mental, emotional, and potentially sexual abuse. So, you know the numbers of Canadians participating in sports and in recreation, We're talking about millions. And so for some sort of federal acknowledgement and understanding of the issue and the possibility that a public inquiry may indeed be part of this. And of course, the sport that gets the biggest black guy, even though the four lead athletes that testified in front of parliament were a couple of soccer players, a boxer, and I can't remember the other lady's discipline. Um, it just escapes me. Wait, no, I got it right here. So it was a boxer and two soccer players and the fencer, Emily Mason. So hockey will get, of course, the black eye. A lot of the stories that came to light regarding the establishment of the National Equity Fund and the millions of dollars that was being paid in the form of registration by minor hockey families. And of course, unbeknownst to minor hockey associations and provincial bodies and individual families, that money was being used to pay out millions of dollars in settlements for those who had alleged uh, sexual misconduct or abuse at the hands of uh, people involved with Hockey Canada. It was completely uh, and utterly madness very quickly some, I think, began in the province of Quebec, they said, well, we're not paying the registration fees to Hockey Canada any longer, if that's how the money's being spent. And, of course, the big bombshell, and there has been a final investigation report submitted regarding that allegations in 2017 in London, Ontario, when a lady says that she was attacked and sexually assaulted by uh, eight hockey players, including some members of Canada's World Junior Hockey Team at that time. We haven't seen any of that information released publicly as of yet. You know full well there's a lot of nervous individuals, a lot of nervous families out there about the fact fact they may be swept up in this and their their names will be published and maybe charges to be laid. So I don't know what the impact is of the settlement that this lady signed with Hockey Canada and the ability for further police investigation to take place. But that, that announcement today regarding the possibility for... Uh, More information regarding Canada's role, federal government's role, in trying to curb and to do the best we can to eliminate abuse inside the world of athletics, especially at the elite level. Uh, Another conversation that people are wondering why we're not having, because remember, I'll just give you the reminder one more time. It doesn't matter if I bring it up. If it's interesting to you and you think it's something that we should be talking about, just do exactly that. You know, make it through a tweet or an email or my preferences if you give us a call. And this one's uh, concerning the life expectancy story. Regardless if you include pandemic numbers, uh, the life expectancy in this province is about two years and two years plus uh, lower than the national average. So just a few years ago, in 2019, people were reaching the average age of about 80, just over. And today it's about 78.7, and again, You know, people uh, talk to a variety of reasons as to why that is the way it is. But I don't think it's all that illuminating to, uh, pardon me, it's not all that unexpected, given the prevalence of some chronic illness in this country or in this province, where we unfortunately lead the league. So we can uh, tackle that again in the morning if you're so inclined. All right, final check in on the Twitter. Or VOCM Open Line, follow us there. Email address is open at vocmcom but we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.